The Trexperts are back on the road again as We're our back. glorious. We're, We're back, back, baby. We're back. The Inglorious <laughs> Live Tour continues back. in 2024. And we're visiting some great cities near you, so don't miss a chance to get exclusive Trexperts merchandise, autograph posters, and see us moderate conversations with the biggest stars in the Trek universe coming to a galaxy or at least a city near you this year, including Richmond, Virginia, Anaheim, California for WonderCon, Oklahoma City, May 24th through 26th, San Diego, California for Comic-Con with Mark and Ashley, July 24th to 28th. But if Mark and Ashley aren't your cup of tea, well, uh, where are they going to find you, Darren? Well, I'm going to be in Raleigh, North Carolina, July 25th through 28th. Me only. Wow. It's the Trexpert tour. You get Darren all to yourself. Yeah, right. And then we'll all be reuniting, and it feels so good, in San Jose, California, August 18th. Do you know the way? The I do I know, know the way. way to San Jose. And maybe we'll go up north to look for the nuclear vessels while we're there. Well, and we're bringing it on all home in Columbus, Ohio, December 6th to the 8th. So if you want to know what guests will be joining us and how to get tickets, go to galaxycon.com, comic-con.org, or trexpressplus.com. You'll be glad you did. We'll see you around the galaxy. Join us. Next year. In 2024, Trexperts Plus subscribers are getting even more from their Trexperts Plus subscription. There's Deck 78, our subscriber-only pop culture podcast, as well as our exclusive Make the Trek podcasts, for all our new Trexperts documentary backers, as well as our subscriber-only Trexpert screening room via our new Discord channel. So for only $4.99 a month, you can be part of the Trexperts Plus family, right? This is, this is almost too much. It's almost too it, much. That's way too much. You think it's too I, much? Should we give much. them less? We ought to be charging way more for this, in, in my opinion. But hey, that's up to you. That's fine. That's yeah. fine. You know hey, what? Man. People get the podcast they deserve, and I think we should give it to them good and hard. <laughs> Look at all the great, the great guests we've had on Tech 78 this year. And next year it'll even be more. But we've had Kenneth, Kenneth Johnson, Ken Wall, Max Every, um, uh, uh, um, Yuri, Yuri Lowenthal. I mean, it's just been a, a such a diverse array of fantastic genre luminaries. And uh, that will continue. But the only way to listen to Deck 78 is to become a Trexperts Plus subscriber. And you can do that today at TrexpertsPlus.com. That's TrexpertsPlus.com. Or subscribe to the 430 movie feed on Apple Podcasts. And this is Darren Doctrine. And this is Ashley Miller. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And we got two very special guests, not just one, not just the returning, bringing holiday cheer from the reservatory, Robert Meyer Burnett. Survive and succeed. It's good to be here. Also joining us for this very special holiday special, we had to bring in a ringer. We're going to talk about Star Trek music. So, of course, it's Kid Cuddy. 
No, it's not Kid Cudi. It's it's, but it is the kid himself, Jeff Bond, author of the music of Star Trek, which is being reissued in 2024. Double mint, double the size. It's going to be even harder to carry that book because it's being updated to include lots of more music. And then, of course, he also had a very successful crowdfunding uh, for his uh, epic two-volume tome, The Jerry Goldsmith Companion, which is also coming out next year, if I'm not mistaken. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you for having me, and thank you for calling me the kid since I'm older than any of you. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. You don't look older than any of us. No. Just saying. He has the Clean. portrait of Dorian Gray hanging out in his house. Clean yeah. living. Clean living. Or the portrait of William Shatner. Because yes. they do <laughs> the same do thing. do it too. <laughs> <laughs> He's still 29 years old, this kid. Mm. Yeah. You're an old so. man. <laughs> so, so, Jeff, you've made quite the career out of writing about Star Trek music. What was the source of the fascination for you, like how did you get into Star Trek music? And, you know, why have you, you know, you've you've written so much, you were the foremost expert, you're the Trexpert on music in Star Trek. How how did this all happen for you? Uh, I think I, you know, when I was uh, watching TV as a kid, there were shows like Johnny Quest and, um, and, and Star Trek, uh, Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau, they just all had great music. And uh, I, like a lot of young nerds of that era, I think I would eventually started just sticking a microphone in front of, you know, the mono TV speaker and recording those things on cassette tapes. Uh, and it was it's impossible to ignore the music on the original Star Trek. It's so upfront and it's it's such a huge part of the the impact of the show. So you, you watch it in reruns and you just memorize it. Sometimes you'd hear the same cue like three times in every episode. Uh, so you would wind up just memorizing all of it. Um, and that just kind of got me inter- interested in all kinds of TV and movie music. Yeah, well, I'm glad with this episode, we're finally going to get to the bottom of what's the best Star Trek music of all time. Sean Cassidy's Star Beyond Time, Rihanna's Sledgehammer, or Magic Carpet Ride from First Contact. <laughs> they're all no. in the mix. No, none, they're, they're, none of those are in the mix. We're actually talking about, obviously, uh, scores, the music that enhanced Star Trek so dramatically. Rob, when you think about Star Trek, which series do you feel is most associated with you know, great film TV music. Well, I mean, I, I have to uh, concur with my esteemed colleague, Mr. Bond. I mean, when I was a kid, um, when I would play with my toys, much to the chagrin of my father, I would also do the music of Star Trek in my bedroom. And his den and my bedroom shared a wall. Mm. And I can't tell you how much of my childhood was spent listening to my father pounding on my wall trying to get me to stop doing the music and the dialogue. I was making up Star Trek stories in my in my head. And, mm. you know, the music, I can still hear like, dun, 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 Third season. Yeah, and, you know, that was Elaine of Troyes. And it's it's like this this music is, like, I literally, I can't even, it's embarrassing to admit, and my honorable mention, I'll get into this, but there there are times, there are moods, that I have in my life or things that I do or go places, even people that I know that I have Star Trek music associated (laughs) with them. 
like when they walk into a room. Yeah, when you bring home a date. You know, and it's whatever that means. Maybe that was my mom's theme. Rob's uh, but, Angels. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's, but this, and I have to tell you, when they finally released, when La La Land finally put out the box set of the entirety of the score, including music we'd never heard before, I've never had a weird Pavlovian response like I had listening to that set of music. Mm-hmm. And it, it was literally, I, I, I mean, from a, a, a mental standpoint, it was like taking a drug. It was, it, it, it was such a weird, because I was flashing back to my childhood, my youth, not just to the episodes, but the times and places that I associated with that music in my head. Right. You know, and it, it's, there's, been, there's been nothing like it on television. Ever. See, I think we should all get a sting. Because now I'm going to go to Ashley Miller. Dun, 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 dun. And Ashley, <laughs> I got to ask you, was Star Trek sort of your gateway drug into film music? Or was it, you know, was it Star Wars? Was it, uh, um, you know, what was it that got you into to, to music? When did the music of Star Trek become important to you? Uh, I would definitely say it was it was Star Trek that uh, that was my my gateway drug for understanding how uh, how music and, and film work together. I mean, it wasn't until uh, later that I really had the the epiphany about cinema and sound and all this other stuff. But but uh, I look like you guys every day. I watched Star Trek every. Day when I played Star Trek, and we all did it, like Rob, I would hum something that kind of went along with it. If I was like wrestling with like one of my friends, come on, man, it's a muck time. It's like <laughs> I don't want to kill my best friend. I mean, it, it, it's 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 the music that shaped our lives, uh, and uh, and I think that you know we're all we're all better for it. What about you, Darren? I mean, how, isn't it sort of intrinsically linked when you think about Star Trek? The music as well is such a, uh, you know, I hate to use this word, but in this case, it's accurate. Yeah, iconic. It's such an iconic part of Star Trek, The you know, the music, whether it be. Well, absolutely. But uh, my, by the way, my sting is. Dun, da, da, dun, da, 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 oh, great. Da, 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 great. You're, you're, <laughs> you're a god, god in your own mind. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> yeah. um, Maybe but, we uh, just. Mourn for him. <laughs> Could we have gathered some laurel leaves? Um, look, the music is incredibly ingrained in our brains, uh, primarily because we watch it every day, but uh, also because I know a bunch of us recorded them and listened to them even mm-hmm. more. Um, and mm-hmm. so we we began to have these tracks imprinted uh, you know, uh, meshed with our own engrams. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it's a, a wonderful thing to sort of recall uh, those moments, not only from the show, but from our lives when we were thinking about it. Um, it's, uh, you know, I, I know we're all, right now we're talking about TOS, and there are, you know, many other representations of the uh, of the music from the Star Trek world. But uh, I think because we all started with uh, TOS, it uh, has a a bigger chunk of our brains ruined. Well, Jeff, I would submit to you that maybe the reason TOS resonates so much to us is because it was the last series that was tracked. 
So, so much of the music would be yeah. used over and over again for various different episodes. Yep. So it really lands and is really identified, you know, certainly with, you know, action moments or romantic moments. It would be used over and over again. And so you, 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 you associate that so much with the show, whereas with Next Generation and subsequent shows, that wasn't the case. Everything was written specifically for each episode. Do you think there's any truth to that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, uh, like I said, you could hear the same cue three times in an episode. You might even hear that in an episode that had a score written for it, but they mm -hmm. still track uh, right. you know, old cues into it. Uh, and that's that's totally true with the newer... Is a, I don't know that you memorize, you, you know, certainly, you know, we're going to talk about the end of Best of Both Worlds. I think everybody remembers that. They remember certain other musical moments from, uh, you know, Next Generation or some of the later shows, maybe. But you don't have everything memorized the, the way you do with, uh, is, you know, it's a combination of all the, you know, the reruns. Uh, the tracking and plus, you know, like I, Darren and I were talking about that we would tape the shows, you know, you'd have that's how we me also memorize all the dialogue. It's not right. like you were watching the show a right. hundred times necessarily, although you did, but you'd also be sitting there listening to a tape of it yeah. and, and just f focusing on the sound, the dialogue, you know, the sound effects, which are e equally brilliant and, and memorable on the original show. Uh, but the, the whole sonic world of it uh, is just pounded into your memory through repetition and because it's just so distinctive. Rob, this isn't unique to us, is it? Because you look at somebody like Terry Metalis and uh, Star Trek Picard is um, a litany of homages mm. to Star Trek music. Not less so the original, but of course, uh, of, of, of First Contact, um, you know, a lot of the, and it's so interesting. You hear Jonathan Frakes talk about First Contact or Insurrection. He said the highlight for him was working with Jerry Goldsmith. And obviously, Stephen Barton pays homage to Horner and Goldsmith and all these legendary uh, Star Trek composers. Well, I think that there was a, you know, a real shift uh, in 87 with the philosophy of music in Star Trek. In that, in, in the 60s, like we talked about, how the music really drove the action and no one was afraid to have the music be brash and bold and uh some of the 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 music in in the original series is just as good as any music for film for film scoring that you would hear and that was really true of the mu uh, music of the Star Trek feature films mm. but beginning in 87 you know it wasn't uh, specifically to Rick Berman's taste to have music out front that way. And, and a composer like Ron Jones, who worked on the first four seasons of TNG, really tried to do some of that. And I think a lot of his music, like for instance, I love a piece of music he did, the Klingon Tea Ceremony music from the second season, from Up the Long Ladder, I think it's from, which is <laughs> not a great, uh, not a great episode, but that piece of music is as good as any piece of music that's been written for Star Trek. But it, it really, it, it wasn't, it, it just changed. The philosophy changed. And then there was some great, great composers that worked on Deep Space Nine and Voyager and Enterprise and TNG. But I think that the original series is so ingrained in us in that that music is so out there. It's so upfront. And so was the music from the feature films. And even Michael Giacchino's score for Star Trek 09, as much as I'm, I have been in. Uh, let's call it a, a a critic of that film. Some of his music, dare like, I say, you're a detractor. A detractor, mm -hmm. but enterprising young men 
and even his theme, you know, his Star Trek theme over the opening titles, dun, 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 you know, boom, 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 boom. It's, it's, it's great stuff. And I think that the truly great, uh, one of the great things that Star Trek has as a, as, as a, uh, a whole history is, is music that really endures and transcends the time it was written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's funny because I think that I probably got into James Bond music with John Barry before mm -hmm. Star Trek, but I, I have to say probably, you know, the get the you know getting that La La Land set was one of the great moments of my soundtrack collecting career. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was just you know the, the holy grail because I think we all remember when the Cage Where No Man Has Gone Before came out on vinyl. For it was the first time Star Trek was really issued. And it's not a great album, and they did it didn't sound that good, and that is not the best music from that show. But yet, it was so exciting. I got to ask you, Jeff, because it seems like the consensus here is, you know, look, it's no secret that we. I think we all think that TOS had the best music. But putting that aside, is there a series that you would point to that you think had great, you know, great music other than the original show that you love? Well, uh, you know, Lost in Space, the, the scores by John Williams are, are, are terrific. And, and uh, I think that they, there was at least a little bit of thought uh, of that as an influence. Fred Steiner worked on uh, Lost in Space before he worked on, on Star Trek. Right. And that was the first, you know, sort of real space show in the, you know, whatever, the modern era, the 60s era. Uh, it, of course, it doesn't compare to Star Trek, but uh, the, the early episodes had some some really exciting music. I, I, lots of shows from that era, you know, were great. The, the you know, the Man from Uncle. It, it was just a wonderful period because you had, you know, you had guys composers who were up and coming who were going to become great film composers, and you had guys like Bernard Herrmann, uh, you know, who were sort of in the late phases of their career and who were magnificent, legendary movie composers, you know, working in television on The Twilight Zone, you know, is another show that had great mm -hmm. music. So that it was just a great period. If you grew up as a kid in that era, I think you probably had a better appreciation for film and television music than maybe somebody who grew up in Darren, the 80s or 90s. Darren, um uh, Rob mentions Up the Long Ladder having a great score, right? So, and there's a history of less than stellar episodes having brilliant scores, like The Paradise Syndrome has a gorgeous score. Code of Honor, Fred Steiner. I was going to mention Code of Honor, yeah. has pretty much one of the greatest scores from TNG on one of the worst episodes. Yep. So it, it's not necessarily, this is not a list of the best episodes or the best movies. No. It's a list of the best music. And I got to say, of all the lists we've done so far, this may have been the most challenging for us. Yeah. There's so many great choices. So it'll be really interesting to see not only where we land, but also what those those key honorary mentions are, because I feel there's so much that couldn't make the list of ten. Right. Um and uh but I we'll see if uh we'll see if um Star Trek Four makes the cut. <laughs> you never know, <laughs> Jeff Bond. You never know. So, okay. You never know. <laughs> Let's get this list going. Um, starting with number 10, Jeff Bond, tell us what our number 10 pick is for uh, this the is greatest the best Star of both, Trek movie ever. The uh, Best of Both Worlds, Captain Borg by Ron Jones.
Uh, this is the end of the cliffhanger for season three. Uh, and it's, it's you know, really when the show finally got great after two very raw, ragged first seasons. And Ron Jones' music, you know, when I used to watch the show the first two years, that Ron Jones' music was almost the only thing keeping me watching. Yeah. And he very much took... He's only thing keep me awake. Yeah, it, he was very yeah. much inspired by Jerry Goldsmith and, uh, you know, the Star Trek The Motion Picture. He, But he had his own approach, which got him into trouble, which was to use lots and lots and lots of electronics, which the producers didn't necessarily love. Uh, but you can When can't, you say the producers, Jeff, it's, you know, a lot of time Rick. has passed. Was it well, Rick or was it Peter Lordson? Because uh, I, Rick says it was Peter. And Peter says it was Rick. I don't. I don't know. I, I. It's another story. But I got to actually sit in on and watch a composer be taken apart on his first, uh, you know, first cruise on on Enterprise by by those guys, and it was pretty ugly. Uh, so, th and they were both. And actually, I would say Berman was the guy landing the blows. Uh, mm. So I would still say it's probably Berman's aesthetic. And he was sort of right in a way, and you know, he kind of smoothed out the look and the the sound of that show in a way that maybe a more contemporary audience could could understand and get into a bit more. Uh, but uh, I think Ron Jones knew how to to score the show in a way that was exciting and modern. And uh, the way that he captured the Borg, you know, his theme for the Borg is, is a eerie, haunting, dis, you know, disturbing piece of music. And the whole buildup uh, to the, the end of, of uh, Best of Both Worlds Part One, you know, where you see the reveal of Picard uh, being taken over by the Borg and, and, you know, Riker's order to fire, the whole buildup to that, it's one of the most exciting, you know, moments of music. Uh, an action in, in television. And I think I got people just, you know, completely psychotically excited about, you know, what they were going to see that fall and helped, you know, turn the, the, you know, by the beginning of the fourth season, the show was a real hit. Right. And uh, I think you could certainly give Ron Jones some credit for that and in, in how exciting he helped make that, that first part of that episode. Mm. Darren, you agree with that, don't you? Totally. I think uh, that's, you know, not only a um, a turning point in the show dramatically, but like Jeff said, it's it's really musically a uh, a, a a huge uh, signpost that says, you know, uh, you may have been bored in the first and uh, and second uh, uh, seasons, but uh, we're getting down bored. to business now. Yeah. <laughs> We're, we're oh, really God. we're really getting down to it now and we're taking we're taking it seriously and uh oh my god uh Picard may not come back um so yeah. you know it's uh, it's really moving emotionally and uh the whole episode is like that it has some great uh, uh themes woven in uh in between the dialogue and and uh it it really puts a capper on uh, on that third season mmm you know, do you notice how the theme, the theme for Riker on the bridge is the ABC News theme? I didn't notice that. But oh, no, until thing. now. Total See, steel. Now, now Peter Jennings. Really he was treating uh, him as Peter Jennings. I loved Peter Jennings. He was one of the greats. He was one of the great newscasters. I miss Peter Jennings. Yep. 
I, I loved him on ABC News. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, Rob, I got to ask you. Obviously, the, the TOS collection, which uh, puts all the music of Star Trek uh, TOS in one box. Now, if if such a thing existed for Next Generation, would you? I mean, obviously, you'd get it, but would you sure. care? I mean, because Jeff did a wonderful Ron Jones project collection, which is terrific. Which is it's only great. Ron Jones, which music. I which I have. Yeah, me too. Yeah. But um, the thing. You know, I probably wouldn't. I probably wouldn't get it. Uh, all of the music from Next Generation, because obviously I do have. They released the Best of Both Worlds on CD, and and there's a lot of the music from Next Generation that's been released that I actually have in anniversary collections. Anything that's been released, I own. It's been but, sampled nicely. Yes. 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 And I would say that um, the problem is a lot of the underscore was designed to just do that, to underscore scenes and not drive them. Right. And so the music, it's, it's I, I hate to say it this way, but it's just not fun. You know, the music is more academic, if that makes any sense. And it's, you know, it, 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 it doesn't, you know, there's a synthesis when you're watching something, a, a great movie. There's a synthesis with what's happening on screen and what the music is doing. And I think if you go back and you think of all of your favorite movies, genre films, action, adventure, science fiction, the music is such an integral part of what's happening on screen that it accentuates it. They work in tandem. Whereas there was a thought, I think, under the Berman regime not to do that with the music because they wanted the music to be there. Of course, music is important, but never to overshadow, overpower or work in, in, in tandem with the scenes. And Ron Jones was a composer who he constantly was pushing that envelope. Yeah. And he talks about that on some of our TNG documentaries. We did a composer roundtable. And, you know, he, he was a little bitter about, about what happened after he left the, the, the force. Ashley, you, you're making faces. Oh, I know. It just, it's, it's, um, I feel like I can simplify a lot of this conversation. I have very extreme feelings about the, the music in the, uh, in the Berman era, as much as I love, um, so many of, of those shows. Uh, it's, it, it, it's not that it's academic. It's academic in the sense that my drywall is academic. <laughs> it is, it is there. It is part of the structure of the house. I guess I need it. It's a thing, um, but it's, you know, it's not something that you think about. Like, it's not something that you notice. I think the the unnice version of it is, is kind of boring garbage. And it's not the fault of the composers. I mean, look, I put a lot of thought into score, right? When I sit and post, I, and Rob can attest to, like, how much thought. I certainly I can. <laughs> into score. A whole lot of thought into score. And these are these incredibly talented composers, right? These guys are like, they're Formula One race drivers. And they're being told, ride a tricycle around the block. And yeah. it's, what is happening on that show? So, you know, when Ron Jones pops up with that best of both worlds score, man, that is a moment. That's a moment because it never happens. And you have to ask, was Berman asleep that day? Like, what was going on? Like, I, I think, you know, in answer to an earlier question, Mark, I, to me, with a few exceptions, the only Star Trek series other than Picard with uh, with memorable music, truly memorable music, was the original series. 
I can't Period. believe that I'm going to somewhat uh, disagree with you. Okay. Um, not, no, it clear, look, obviously, there's no comparison to TOS. And what Terry yeah. and Stephen Barton did on um, Picard is great. But I do feel that towards the end, when you sort of have the emergence of Jay Chataway and Don Davis. Oh, and, yeah. Um, and, oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, These guys uh, are great. And, Make no mistake. Uh, John Debney. Like some of the stuff for Enterprise and even Voyager – you know, and if you if you have the La La Land app, and I highly encourage people if they haven't picked up these wonderful La La Land collections, uh, that uh, they should, um, because um, uh, there is some good. It's not as consistent as the original series, right. but there are some great cues um, that are are pretty good because there is this mythology that the only good composer ever worked on Star Trek was Ron Jones, right? Yeah, no, that's not true. Community, which is not true. Not true. No, they, they, they were all good composers, and they could all go, do good good work, depending on absolutely what was going on. But but Ron Jones was the biggest troublemaker. Yes. Yeah. It's like the, <laughs> right. the, the composer on many can levels. Only what yeah. he is allowed to do. Right. Yeah. Yes. He gave no Fs, as they say. Okay, so that number 10, that's the best of both worlds. Captain Borg by Ron Jones from The Next Generation to start us off. Uh, we're going to travel to the uh, center of the galaxy with number nine, Ashley Edward Miller. You know, um, when Star Trek V came out, it, it took a lot of crap. And I, I think uh, this podcast has has done yeoman's work in, uh, in trying to rehabilitate the reputation of, of that film. Um, we do like our one, yeomans. Yeah, we love our yeomans on this show. Uh, one of the things, however, that uh, that was never under any criticism whatsoever, because it was just freaking brilliant, uh, was Jerry Goldsmith's score for Star Trek V. And uh, in particular, uh, the, uh, the, the score over the section of the film where the shuttle is flying in to Shakari, they've left the Enterprise, they're like, it's called A Busy Man by Jerry Goldsmith. It is one of my favorite cues in the, the history of Star Trek music. Um, it almost makes the visuals of that sequence work because it, it does what the, what the effects simply fail to do. Um, it, it gives us something to associate 
with the reactions that we're getting from Kirk and Spock yeah. and McCoy that, that justifies them. It's beautiful. And I'll tell you, one of my favorite moments in that particular piece of music, it's a subtle little thing, but it just shows you what a genius Jerry Goldsmith is. There's a moment where he brings in the Klingon theme, mm -hmm. but he integrates it so beautifully, right? Like he doesn't break tone. He just lets you know the Klingons are there. And right. there's just this element of danger. It's just this, oh, hey, look over here, but we're still in this space. Um, and uh, it just goes, I mean, look, we could probably do an entire episode just on why, you know, Jerry Goldsmith is perfect in every way. Uh, but but again, like this is this is absolutely one of my favorite pieces of, of music in, uh, in a movie that I have, I've, I've come to love quite a lot. I, I think that particular cue also has an amazing moment where uh, Jerry Goldsmith is playing along with the editors and sound effect editors because there's one point where we are looking at, I think, a, a an alarm panel or something, and it's going mm -hmm. off beep, 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 exactly in time with the music, and it fits perfectly. Uh, yeah, and it's awesome. It's, it's such a great cue. Uh, it, it provides the wonder that we want. Um, and if you close your eyes, you get it fully. Uh, and oh, yeah. I love that cue. It's, uh, it's everything I wanted in that movie. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. And I just, get. I, yeah, I just remember watching that and I was watching that in a, at a late show uh, where they had let the air conditioning go off. So everyone in the audience <laughs> was even more miserable than they were watching the movie. Uh, and and that was the one moment when that music cue started and they're talking, the you know, the whole picture about talk, finding God. And you're like, yeah, right. They're, they're going to find God. And when you hear that music, you're like, wait a minute. Oh, maybe they are going to find God. God. Yeah. That, that he God used, is Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, that, that motif, he used tubas to play that, which mm -hmm. you normally think is a, a basically a comic comical instrument but they got this huge kind of like you know alpine horn sound that you know sounds like like vikings and and it feels like you're going to valhalla uh and the, and that that also has his music for shakari right which is this it's very much related to the you know he did this score to uh this tom cruise movie ridley scott movie legend which was not used yeah. And it's it's uh, he wrote music for unicorns, uh, and the whole idea of the unicorn and shakari, it's the same idea that the, the these things are too perfect to really exist, and it's sad right. that they don't. They can't. It's something we're imagining that we really want, but can't possibly be true. And it, he wrote this kind of tragic music for both those, for, both for films that didn't necessarily need that. You know, they didn't need that whole extra level of thought put into them. But uh, he was a composer who just was great at building complex and uh, powerful ideas into his music. Yeah, that, that Shakari theme is amazing because it's 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 a couple of uh, lines that interweave with each other. And it's so beautiful. And you hear it when you're panning across all the aliens on the bridge saying their various names yeah. of uh, paradise. Right. And it's really moving. And I love it. Wow. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm just sitting back and enjoying the conversation. I'm learning a lot on this show. <laughs> 
I'm getting a trekkication. Hashtag trekkication. Oh so, uh, I knew that uh, we would want to have Jeff on the show. This is awesome. Uh, I, I got to tell you, I can only share. This is a weird personal remembrance that I just thought of when you guys were talking. I, um, My good friend Stephen Simak was the producer of an NPR show called um, Music of the Music of the Cinema at the time. And uh, and uh, so he got an advanced copy of Star Trek V. And we were driving somewhere. I think it was like a freaking Renaissance Fair in New Jersey or something. This is when I still lived in New York. And so we listened to this. Hey, I got the soundtrack to Star Trek V. And we're <laughs> driving, and it was like Toyota Corolla 1984 or whatever, whatever. It was an old, the old car. I was hoping it would make it to Jersey. And he plays, he puts on the Star Trek V thing. And we're listening, and we're like, this is going to be the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was so awesome. And we, that's all we listened to. We just kept playing it over and over. And on the way home, we listened to it again and again. Yeah. And we just loved that freaking score um, to Star Trek V. And, you know, you dismiss this movie at your own peril. We've talked about the many things about it that work, the ideas, the concept. But one thing that unquestionably is a triumph is Jerry Goldsmith's score. So there you go. Robert Meyer Burnett, speaking of interplexing beacons, tell us what our number eight pick is. Well, uh, I guess we go back to, or go forward to 1996 for this one. And again, not a surprise, Mr. Jerry Goldsmith. And uh, uh, this is considered, First Contact is obviously considered probably the best of the Next Generation films, and Dennis McCarthy had scored Generations right. and uh, coming off of the TV series because he obviously was so integral to that. But they brought back Goldsmith, and I have to tell you, the opening theme to this, the main title, and then it moves into Locutus. It begins with the classic Star Trek theme. I mean, when it first starts, it's unmistakable. I, I, my heart races. But then there's something really interesting that happens. Then there's these, I don't know if they're timpani drums, but there's drums in between. Yeah, and you know what, that's, you know what that's playing? Yeah, the, the, the busy man theme. Yeah, yeah yes. Bum, 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 bum. That's yeah. what's interesting. That, that becomes a motif that goes through the later scores. And it's it's... So cool that it, you know he 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 does that, and then it launches into one of my favorite pieces of Star Trek music, a brand new theme that when you hear it, it it's 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 got a Horner nautical feel to it, 
But then it also becomes, it's got a, it, it, almost like you're watching some kind of a triumphant World War II movie. It's a and hymn. Then it become, it's, it's a it's, hymn. It's just a, this incredibly sweeping, romantic piece of music that becomes triumphant. And of course, it's repeated later for the for, first uh, warp flight. And, and to me, it's a brand new piece of music that we've never heard before, but it encompasses everything that Star Trek is. And in a way, the Next Generation theme was Star Trek The Motion Pictures theme. So the Next Generation, in my mind, never had its own real theme mm-hmm. until right. this moment. And when you hear this first contact theme, and it is just, it's wonderful. And then when it's, you're already elated. The only thing that lets it down is the lame title sequence for this movie that I thought was really uh, lackluster. Uh, it was an afterthought. And it, I wish it had some kind of, uh, you know, you're seeing the titles being slowly assimilated. When the first contact comes up, it's being assimilated. Yeah, you get to watch the how the letters rust. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it, <laughs> it, it, it's really let down. But then you've got this really interesting musical change and we go into... Uh, an unbelievable effect sequence that replays what happened to Picard in Best of Both Worlds in a way we've never seen it before, the vastness of the Borg cube, and it immediately goes into this music that you know just screams the Borg. And it's a really great change and brings us into this horror. I mean, it's a horrifying, if you've ever seen the movie Fire in the Sky, the coolest part about that Mm -hmm. is when Travis Walton gets put in the uh, alien ship and this is what you see what happened to Picard when he's trans- transformed into Locutus and it's horrifying. And and the, the score just really does a wonderful job of, of underlying the horror that's going on. And they brought back the blaster beam. He brought back the blaster beam in this score uh, from Star Trek, the motion picture. And, and also his son, Joel, had to come in and, and pinch it for him because he was finishing, I think, Ghost in the Darkness. Yeah. So you, it, it's still, I love the score for this movie, but this piece of music, uh, you can put anything. If you're if you want to make a, a video of yourself making a sandwich and you put this piece of music in it, it, it seems like you're doing the most important thing you'll ever do in your life. It is a wonderful piece of music, and I I I I can't tell you how much I love it. One of the uh, one of the most powerful uh, uh, callbacks that Picard season three had was that they used this theme as the end title. Yeah. Yeah. And it brings back so much emotion and and recall and connection that it is just it's the perfect theme for uh, the next generation. And like I said before, it is it is a church hymn. You can hear the you know the crowds of uh, of parishioners singing along with it, even though there are no words. But it's it's really amazing, and it just recalls that that sort of uh, mutual feeling of uh, of uh, hope and rejoicing. Ashley, you, know, you want to say something? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I I love this main title, and I you know spoiler alert, it's my uh, it's probably my favorite uh, Star Trek main title. And I think the the reason why, and it's something that, that Rob was kind of getting to, it's just the way it makes everything feel important and that nautical feel. But there's this um there is this this sense of uh of longing to it, right? You know, of 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 looking back on something you know that with some with a degree of 
of sadness, but also with some hope that comes out of it. And to me, you know, it, it kind of captures what I what I feel is is always best in in Star Trek music, which is, you know, this this sense of looking forward, right? Like that, no matter what happened to you back here, like what's in front of you, you know, is 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 potentially great, and that you have to believe in that, right? And that the that the emotions. Of of what you went through, all of those things are real, right? It infuses the it infuses the story with a, with just a real sense of human emotion. It is in no way an intellectual exercise, and it grabs you by the guts, but in like in the gentlest possible way. Like I just I I love it. I, I think it's it's nearly perfect. Well, you, I love. Uh, let me just say that I I think that. It is definitely related to the story of Zephram Cochran and the advancement of humanity into space. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it, they they uh, they bring it back when the Vulcans come down at the end. It is uh, really a, an elegy to the uh, the uh, unstoppable force of humanity and the the drive to advance into the final frontier. And that's what it always spoke to uh, in my mind. Well, I love what you and Rob are saying about it being a de facto next generation theme. And I think the fact that it became kind of the theme for next generation season eight uh, is really um, <laughs> speaks to that, you know? And uh, it's no wonder that, you know, Terry, uh, you know, really seized on this as being like the key piece of music to build his season around. And uh, it's just, it's so majestic and beautiful. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot more Jerry on this list because if there's any, you know, as associated as John Williams is with Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Jerry Goldsmith, and no, not taking anything away from James Horner, who also had, but Jerry Goldsmith, worked on next generation films he worked on original films uh original series films so jerry goldsmith is the john williams of the star trek franchise score the theme to voyager yeah and he mm-hmm. uh, you know i i don't know if people really know that he was roddenberry's first choice to be the composer in the original show he was the right. first on the list but of, he was busy uh, yeah, he was busy. And he was I, a busy he, man. Busy, busy, busy. Yep. He probably was just, uh, they were interested in him because in him he did The Man from Uncle. Uh, right. That that would have been in the fall of 64. And, you know, they were scoring the cage December. Uh, so that's why it would have been on their radar. Yet hadn't really done that much in the way of big movies then, although he'd certainly done a number of movies, but I think they were probably interested in him for Man from Uncle. And that's he was hired by Irwin Allen uh, for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea because of Man from Uncle. Mm. Uh, so he, he, and he, Goldsmith always kind of, you know, half jokingly said that he didn't really understand Star Trek. And uh, there's a, you know, when he was scoring, um, uh, what what's the, second from last one that ever oh right insurrection that you know he had to rescore the whole final sequence because he didn't really understand what was going on in it although apparently neither he wasn't the the only one yeah Yeah. they they had to redo the whole sequence because nobody really knew what was going on but you know if when you listen to 
the first contact theme, the Voyager theme, the material that he came up with it. He had a, a very like intimate understanding of what the feeling of Star Trek was. Of what all Star about. Trek should have been. Yeah, the the optimism and, yeah. and the wonder of it. Well, that's uh, that's our pick for number eight. And in number seven, a composer who always said, let me help make Star Trek better. He is probably the number one Star Trek composer for the original series. Jeff, tell us what our number seven pick is. Uh, it's uh, called Edith Suspects from the city of On the Edge of Forever, and it's by Fred Steiner. I would actually credit Fred Steiner more than than Alexander Courage, who you know, who wrote the famous Star Trek theme music and the, the fanfare that is in front of every movie, uh, and uh, who did some really cool music for the show. But I think Fred Steiner actually set down the the real style for music on the show right. in the first season and created you know so much of the most memorable music and, and what's interesting about this cue from sitting on the edge of forever is one of the tiniest most quiet little cues that he ever wrote but uh i think it is amazingly effective in you know one of the greatest Star Trek episodes ever, and it's you know for this scene where Joan Collins as Edith Keeler is is talking to Kirk and Spock in the you know basement of her flop house, and starting to really figure out that they're different, and she's explaining, you know, kind of explaining to each of them who they are. Right, like she knows them better than they know themselves, and and. Uh, Steiner's music—it's like a Bernard Herrmann cue. It's—it's you know—it's yeah. written for harp and and strings, and it's just this just incredibly haunting, uh, you know, spectral piece of music that that it, it indicates. You know, I think Kirk's wonder at at how she's figuring this this out and her own you know Edith's kind of uh sense that she's outside her own time and and right. kind of transcends all this stuff it's such a simple piece of music but this guy just had incredible instincts he could write huge things you know for the corbomite maneuver write music for a mile wide spaceship and make you completely believe that this you know christmas ball decoration you're seeing on the screen was was this gigantic spaceship but he could do the you know charlie x get get into the psyche of of charlie evans and and the the, the most intimate 
quiet emotions. Uh, so he could go from the tiniest moments of Star Trek to the, to the biggest, you know, space opera. And uh, so uh, to me, he was one of the, you know, so pivotal to the sound of the original show. And what what is apparent in this cue is that this is when Kirk starts to fall in love with her. Mm-hmm. And so it is it is the emotional pivot on the whole episode. Yep. Well, I would and, add to that, yeah. Aaron, that it took James Cameron three and a half hours to tell this epic love story. They only had <laughs> 45 minutes to to tell this, you know, galaxy spanning romance where you know you believe that Kirk fell so hard and McCoy for this woman and that he would this tragic ending where he would sacrifice her to save the world eternal. And I think you as great as the performances are, it's the music that sells yeah. that romance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And 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 due to the fact that they cut out the scene where Kirk was talking to Edith about how he didn't like sand and it was coarse and, <laughs> and rough. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, well, you know, look, Shatner couldn't give a performance that bad as uh, <laughs> as uh, <laughs> But uh Rob, I mean, this is a really special uh score. I mean, we're 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 doing this by music, but that entire score for City on the Edge of Forever, including the youth, the use, the very unique use of Goodnight Sweetheart, which Steiner uses an instrumental version of as well as the source cue. And and if you need any proof of this, just remember the original home video release which uh, didn't have oh Goodnight Sweetheart on it because they couldn't clear it. And what a different how 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 it changes the whole episode. Yeah. They like it's they snuck it back in there too. <laughs> You know, putting it back. But no, I think that, that um, you know, when you only have... The thing about the great Star Trek episodes, especially the original series, they were trying to tell two or three hour stories in an hour. So In 52 music, minutes. In 52 minutes. And, the, and the, the music had to... It was like supercharging what you were seeing. So when I said it worked in tandem, it also, like you said, the romance was really sold because... In that 52 minutes, you had to have the the setup, you know, McCoy getting getting injected and going crazy and beaming down to the planet, finding the Guardian of Forever, and then going back in time and doing that entire setup. And mm. the music in all of it is so great. And there's so many different colors in that particular episode. Like there's even, there's that humorous moment, perhaps the... The accident you had as a child, you know, yeah. it's and then you you have you go into this incredible romantic score, and then it's and, and then it, uh, it's the, like this piece of music that we're talking about, and it's really incredible how Freed could do this in the space of fifty two minutes, and you know I don't know if Steiner know, actually. Oh, yeah. did I say that? Did I say yeah. Freed? Yeah. Um, I was looking at the next there is one. No, but, yeah. You could have said there is Brian no Steiner, not Gerald Freed. But, but there's a think. lot of other composers. You know, they use music by a lot of... I mean, it's a credit, too, to the editors because right. the, the music editors... The the editing of the, the, the climactic moment, you know, when... When uh, oh. Edith mentions McCoy, and yeah. that's another Fred Steiner Leonard cue. McCoy? Yeah, it's a it's a library cue of, of a, a version of some a faster version of something from Charlie X, and then the 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 rest is uh, from uh, Naked Time. It's Alexander Courage, but the way that is edited, the build up to her death, 
And then it goes into to the original music that that uh, Steiner wrote for yeah. the actual aftermath of her death. And it's that still just uh, grabs me by the throat every yeah. time I watch that episode. Yeah. It's yeah, amazing. It's, no matter how many times you watch this episode, it still packs a wallop. Uh, it's pretty, pretty amazing. And uh, uh, next at number six, uh, it's uh, all Star Trek music in one package. Darren Dockerman. <laughs> Uh, the beginning of the second season was a very delicate time. Um, they, uh, they entered it with a bang. Well, almost, uh, Spock, uh, is crazy. Let's start with Spock throwing soup, shall we? And, uh, the meek soup. The episode was a muck time and, uh, the composer was Gerald Freed. And, uh, in addition to the, uh, amazing world building of Theodore Sturgeon in this episode and Dorothy Fontana. Um, the world of the Vulcans is shrouded in, in ritual and in music. The, the the Vulcans are represented by this very strange sort of modal uh, piece that is uh, it's basically played in two ways. It's played in a very uh, uh, processional slow pace as the wedding party uh, comes to the place of Kunut Khalifi and the uh, during the the battle, it's it's the same music, but played fast with uh, with uh, more percussion and uh, and uh, much more energy. Um, and uh, this this cue is uh, ritual and to the death, which is sort of it it uh, balances those two ways of playing this uh, this theme that everyone knows. They we've we saw it on. Uh, 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 the cable guy. They uh, they played it in the uh, 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 the medieval medieval times scene, yep. and uh, it's you know it, it's obviously something that is very familiar even to the most casual Star Trek fans. You know, and it's it's a very complicated theme, but. It is also very uh, descriptive of the strange world of the Vulcans. Uh, it the the theme is uh, bits and pieces of thought that don't necessarily go together, but it it works because it's so strange and it is it is held together by this rhythmic uh, pulse uh, during the processional and the uh, the very loud and forceful uh percussion in the in the battle and it's just it it is really evocative of action and strangeness and alienness and uh it's really amazing gerald freed's uh, one of my favorite star trek composers and he really really pulls out all the stops for this one 
He, he was fantastic at action. And I think you could argue this might be the only piece of television underscoring that like the general public sort of knows because exactly. it's, it's been satirized so often. And the funny thing is that I remember seeing a, uh, a comedy routine uh, probably in the eighties where this comedian comes out and is like, I'm going to hum music from uh, Gilligan's Island, but not the theme. I'm, right. I'm just going to, and he would, uh, he hummed, these different pieces of comedy music, and they were all by Gerald Free. Right. Uh, so he sort of <laughs> pulled the same thing off uh, on Gilligan's Island in a way. But, you know, one of my favorite, I think this is one of the, possibly the most exciting piece of music ever written for, for television. And what, what, <laughs> What I think is it makes it that even bigger accomplishment is that the music, when they're just sitting there in the middle and they're yeah, not fighting, that is as exciting as the fight music. Yeah. It, when you listen to that, that maintains it's this that tension. Pulse. And and it's it play, and it plays the da 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 through through that, and it, it it's electrifying. There's a something you know he did Friday's Child too, which is of course not yeah. as well known, but has almost as exciting action music in it. And and the the final scene, you know, when they're shooting the arrows at Ty Andrews, there's a yeah. moment just like that 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 where they're just pausing in between the action, and you're like, Jesus, this is exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing is happening. Well, it's the, the oh. this virtuoso composing uh, in a very fast uh, manner. I mean, these things were written in a couple days. Yeah, uh, it, it's truly amazing how uh, how much energy and and thought and heart goes into these. Uh, it is truly amazing, and how well it works with the episode itself. It's just so magical. It's all I know I mean, is it's, it's it's all true, but you know, there is no better piece of music to use if you have video of your small twins fighting <laughs> uh, to just lay that in as the score. I mean, it tells you everything. It's two brothers; they love each other, and yet they must fight to the death. Must fight to the death. To the death. You know, it, it's death. funny. Rob and I have a history of taking on insane projects just because. We thought it would be fun. We thought it would be fun to run a newspaper. So years ago, this is probably 26, 27 years ago now, um, Rob and I were putting on this uh, sci-fi kids day at the um, uh, Vegas MGM Grand in Vegas. Back and when there was an these, amusement park, a park in the back of it. When there was an amusement park, we had all these different guests coming and sci-fi luminaries. And it was this wonderful thing that we were, we were doing to raise money for charity for I Have a Dream Foundation, uh, which gives scholarships to underprivileged uh, youth and or youths, as uh, Joe Pesci might say. And there was one station where they had these long, inflatable on a stage, like a, a bouncy stage. And we just looked at each other. We didn't even have to say. <laughs> Clearly, this would be the amok time fighting arena. <laughs> so we had signage made. And then we had to arrange with the hotel to put on a loop the amok time music. So when people thought they would be fighting to dun, 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 and it was the coolest thing in the world. I would just like to say that your brother kicked the shit out of me. 
Yeah, I remember that. He he, uh, <laughs> he he was more athletic than I was, and uh, yeah, he he uh, it was fun. But uh, I got my ass handed. You to killed me. my brother and my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so he but, killed uh, me. <laughs> it was uh, it was wild, and again, it's like we already were inundated with work. We had guests dropping out. We had things. We had seminars going on. We had all these different you know, entertainment stations, so much going on, yet we couldn't help but create more work for us to, to create this, this amok time fighting arena. You know, and we didn't glorious. We didn't bring it up on our pop culture uh, uh, show, but the cable guy. Well, no, yeah. he just mentioned I, that. I earlier. mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. But, but that, that scene, what I wanted to say, cause I didn't jump in on that was the fact that this particular piece of music is probably the most recognized outside of people that might not even know what it's from. They yes. might not even know that it's Star Trek. Yeah. But they know, and the cable guy is part of the reason for that. But but the the this piece of music, everybody can do like a version of it. Yeah. You yeah. know, they, they can hum some kind of version of this piece totally. of music. And it's it's always cracked me up because people that really know nothing about Star Trek, I've I'll be in like a bar somewhere and somebody'll bring this up or something, and I'm like, you know, you turn and listen to it, and I, it's because it, it shows the power of this 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 piece. People yeah. never forget it when they hear it. If you hear it once, you never forget it. Yeah. I got to say, not that this has anything to do with ritual or to the death, but it just speaks to the power of Star Trek music that you're alluding to. There are two times where I really feel um, it was, uh, you know, it always bothered me in Next Generation. I, I was so. I, I so identified the Vulcan mind meld music with a mind meld that you didn't get that. Yeah. Like I felt like every time you did a mind meld, like you, you had to use that. And it was the same You're thing in Trouble head. with Tribbles where Berman didn't use the bar fight music right. in Trials and Tribulations, which was a huge mistake. Yeah. And to this yeah. day, it's impossible to watch that without thinking, the music's all wrong. Yeah. yeah it, 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 and you know, that's one of the greatest things and I didn't ask him this when we were doing the documentaries but I should have because we weren't doing Deep Space Nine but I want to know he had to have made that call of course to not put that music there oh, I know he did it, yeah and it's just it's so wrong because you he know probably, they must attempt it with it of course well, he probably yeah. he probably blamed Peter Lawrence <laughs> well it, it, it was you know Deep Space Nine as much as we love that show was the most risk averse when it came to music the, sure. I mean I have all those scores La La Land did a beautiful job but I'm not a fan overall that doesn't mean there aren't good episodes there isn't good music but overall not a huge fan of the music for Deep Space Nine well the, the scripts had to do uh, pull more of their weight yeah no. and speaking of, uh, of of some heavy lifting at number five, Ashley Edward number Miller. It came from out there to here, our system, across the galaxy. Tell us what our number five pick of the greatest Star Trek music ever is. Our number five pick comes from season two. Episode six, my third favorite uh, original series episode, the Doomsday Machine. Uh, and you know there was there was some conversation about you know whether the the cue should be the Planet Killer or Goodbye, Mister Decker, 
Right. And uh, and ultimately, where we we came down, and and I, I wholeheartedly agree, is uh, is goodbye, Mr. Decker. I'll tell you why. Because that particular cue manages to encapsulate what this score for this entire episode really achieves. It feels like a film score. It it doesn't feel like somebody sat down and they they put together a score for a TV show with some really great cues in the middle of it. There are themes um, that are interweaving and that are original. Um, there is this amazing um, sense that the doomsday machine is out there and it's hovering and it's dangerous. And we don't know, like, you know, when it's going to turn around and decide to eat us, but it's going to happen. And then, you know, when the crap hits the fan, all of a sudden, boom, the doomsday machine is in your face. Uh, but the way that Saul Kaplan takes that music and then interweaves it with what's happening with uh, with Matt Decker and with Kirk and, you know, with what's happening on the Enterprise. It's really pretty fantastic. It's, uh, and especially considering what Darren said about how much time these guys had to write these scores. Um, it is, and by the way, it's also one of those scores, you know, that when you hear it, you recognize, like, the doomsday machine, right? It's like, da, 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 da. It just, it's, it's awesome. as it's if like, God created the devil and gave him Jaws. Gave it, yeah, exactly. It is like Jaws, man. It's like, by the way, let's let's kind of digress quickly and just talk about like, okay, Doomsday Machine, Jaws, Godzilla minus zero. Okay, so in all three of these films, you have the gigantic thing that's out there that wants to freaking eat you. How do you kill it? Well, you drive something down its throat. And you blow it up in its belly, like, and you know what? Yeah. That trick always works, uh, and it's 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 fantastic in all three instances. But with I'm not commenting to, on that at all. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, please, please don't. Because That's we're stronger with them than without you. But yes, we uh, we're, we uh, it's Matt. Come back. Um, he uh, poor Matt Decker. You know, and things didn't work out too great for his kid either, as it turns out. Well, I guess it well, depends on like on, on how you look at it. Depends on your point of view. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a great. He great got to piece meld with Ilea. That's not the end of the. That's not that's, so bad. You're right. That isn't bad. Actually, you know what? I take it back. But the, um, the Matt Decker the, died, so his son's life could be awesome. But the great thing is that Matt Decker has a theme. He and does. It's the every hero needs a theme song. It is Captain Kirk, but faced with a horrible situation. And it is it is uh, an amazing sort of amalgam of uh, of feelings that is woven into this score, and uh, you know obviously when 
uh, spoiler, when uh, Decker is, is uh, destroyed in his shuttle, uh, there is a little faint bum, ba, ba, bum in the background when he disappears. A little sad and one. It, is, it is so uh, well done and well thought out. And yeah, mixing that into the uh, pulsing, uh, never-ending, destructive force of the Doomsday Machine uh, is really... It's a it's a symphony of uh, of terror and uh, and energy and uh, and excitement. The, yeah, this the, entire the, score okay. has stuff like the you know it that whole end sequence. All of the music in this from the very beginning of the score. I mean, obviously, we've got this incredible piece with the Doomsday Machine, but every little. In and outro, and 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 all these little little flourishes throughout this this score. This is one of the greatest scores ever written for a television episode ever. Yeah, but uh, Saul Kaplan yeah. was you know he was a golden age composer. He started yeah. working in the forties, and nothing he ever did in film can measure up to to this score or you know the the enemy within. He just wrote except two... for the Yellow Jacket score for <laughs> Star Trek Four. He he just wrote. Uh, you know, two scores for the original series, but they're both, you know, absolutely incredible. Uh, the, the the way he handles drama, you know, the scenes between uh, Decker and Spock on the bridge has some of the most dynamic music, you know, just this oh. explosion uh, when uh, Spock's relieved of command and the, the, the way that he builds that theme for Decker just starts kind of nudging Spock when he, he's needling him and basically about to relieve him of command uh so it, it all that music is as explosive as as the space stuff and and you know the effects in the original show they were really cool looking but they were very simple you know in 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 what they could achieve and his score does so much work in making you believe everything that's going on mm-hmm. uh, in the space battle the the he has music for power systems failing he has music for the transporter yeah uh this brilliant piece of music for the transporter that you know provides the whole payoff for the the destruction of the doomsday machine you've got that you know huge cacophony uh that all dies down and then you hear that theme for the transporter you know emerge out of that as as uh, kirk is beaming back in uh, I, I just remember when I was watching it as a kid, I, I just immediately got, I was so drawn in by the music of going into the, the system and finding the constellation. Then when they beam over to the constellation, there's this moment where Scotty's just like fixing some <laughs> panel and there's sparks or something. And he's got these like piccolos and the shimmering stuff, you know, yeah. even for that action, just this brilliant dynamic little moment. And you know, if you're going to compare this to Jaws, there's basically a music like uh, the Indianapolis story mm-hmm. uh, f- that John Williams wrote for Matt Decker talking about the planet killer. This just moody, quiet, you know, creepy uh, music for this experience that this guy's been through. So, yeah, it, this score has absolutely everything in it. Uh, it, it you could easily argue... You know, I think between this or Mock Time, and it's of course they they were included on the original GNP release, kind of the first real major exciting release of Star Trek music. Yeah, uh, and, and you could not couple you know two better examples of music for for this show and 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 what they do. 
I also have to give a shout out. One of my favorite sound effects, this is so weird. One of my favorite sound effects ever is the sound of the transporter platforms blowing yes. out. Oh, right, yeah. Tra- just, and the way that works within the music. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Star Trek never gets enough credit for its sound effects. No. Nope. But, but that blowing out, that particular sound. Yeah. Says so much, gentlemen. I suggest you be my support. It's yeah. so good, and it works. I mean, this this is one of the great hours of of all time television. Oh, and yeah. it's just yeah. it's. I just want to say that because boy, do I love that sound effect. Well, that that you were mentioning the the transporter theme, which is sort of a combination of transporter and Captain Kirk, um, mm-hmm. because it's it almost is a a quote of. Uh, that World War One song uh, over, over there. there. I know. Yeah. Somebody, I was just going to say somebody. I was listening to it's John Champion and his whoever was with him. They he said that, and I, that's one of the funniest things I've ever yeah. heard. Because you know, it's really it's like over beam them over there. It's 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 so great, and it's and it's iconic because it it represents something else in your mind. Yeah, it is taking that place here in the future. So. The Doomsday Machine has dead eyes, like a doll's eyes. <laughs> like a doll's eyes. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, we're going from the uh, the Doomsday Machine. Back in the 20th century, they called it a Doomsday Machine. We're going from the Doomsday Machine to a sonic shower with Robert <laughs> oh, <Arbonette> yeah. <laughs> and number four on our list. Um, I, you know, I can't remember. By 1979, I'd become a bonafide soundtrack collector. Mm-hmm. mostly because of Star Wars and Jaws. As a kid, those are like my two first soundtrack albums. But by 1979, I had Goldsmith score for Logan's Run. I had Capricorn One. You know, I, I had Planet of the Apes. I was a huge Jerry Goldsmith fan. So by the time that he... And I can't remember if I had the soundtrack album before I saw Star Trek The Motion Picture. I don't remember I want to believe that I had it after I saw the movie. Mm-hmm. But so Star Trek The Motion Picture had an overture. And I don't think that I had seen a movie in the theater yet that had an overture. Right. And so... Because the, the Black Hall wouldn't open for two more weeks. That, that's right. That's right. And, and it, so, so sitting in that theater, you know, the lights came down. I was in the John Dance Theater, this gigantic theater. It was 4 o'clock in the afternoon for the 4 o'clock show. Curtains open and this music starts playing. And it was, I mean, it sounded like a love story. And and for me, I, I didn't, there was no familiar Star Trek theme in it, but I could tell it was Jerry Goldsmith's music. Mm-hmm. You know, and the screen was just black. It was just, there was nothing on the screen. And I'm I'm listening to this music and I'm 12 years old and this was the most important film going experience of my young life. More so than Star Wars because I didn't know what it was. Having been a dyed-in-the-wool Star Trek fan, this was it, man. This was like, I, I, I could have been, you know, it, was, it truly was the second coming. And this was the first taste. And this incredibly beautiful, romantic piece of music. And I was by myself. I mean, you know, I was only 12. And I'm listening to this music, and I didn't know what it was. But I'm like, if you took my feelings for the Star Trek franchise as a whole and tried to encapsulate it in a piece of music. Not not about the music, but about what my love for the franchise meant to me. It was this piece of music. 
And I'm sitting in there in the dark and I was kind of perplexed. And I was so moved by this music. It was the most, at the time, the most beautiful piece of music I'd ever heard maybe. For, and I thought Goldsmith's best piece of music was the was the theme that you hit when you see the sun coming out of the Dome City and Logan's Run. Mm -hmm. Up till that moment, that was the piece of music that got me. But it was funny because it was the same theater I saw Logan's Run in. You know, and I'm 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 there, and then the, and then when it ends, you know, it kind of ends slowly and it fades out, and then the Paramount Pictures logo came up before the fanfare began, and I was like, I felt like somebody understood me. <laughs> you know, it was like, <laughs> you understand me? I'm like 12 years old, and I was I I, I was beat up. In school that day, people were making fun of me because I was wearing a Star Trek jacket and stuff, and I had buttons on, and I I was accused of being che I cheated on an Earth science test when I was spacing out because I couldn't wait. I'd had like the worst day ever, and and uh, we we sort of documented it in Free Enterprise, and by the end of this music, I was like crying. <laughs> the movie hadn't even started yet, and it was of course you know Ilya's theme. And it was the it was the first track on the second side of the soundtrack album, which seemed fitting. But um, man, man, did, and every time I hear this music, and I probably heard this piece of music a thousand times, literally, it never ceases to make me feel like a twelve-year-old boy about to see my favorite thing in the world come you back. Mean, you mean feel <laughs> as if you were a twelve-year-old boy? Well, yeah, no, because you know what, you know what it was. It doesn't make me feel like I was twelve. It makes me feel the love that I could only have felt as a twelve-year-old, young as love. A strange star woman teaches. I mean, it, it right. was just because you know it was not typical Star Trek music, and I didn't really know what was happening. And I felt like maybe somebody just decided to put this music on just because, right? Because they knew they how important. It. Yeah. yeah, what it was about, to, what we were about to see, because I wasn't up on my classical composers, you it's, know? It's, it's interesting, because I, I think you could argue that Ilya's theme is Jerry Goldsmith's reaction to Sandy Courage's original Star Trek theme. Because it mm. has the same sort of lyrical uh, ups and downs in it. Um, and But it is, it is far more developed and, and nuanced and it it brings out, uh, at least in me, more sort of emotional cues. And it is so, like you said, it is so beautiful and so lyrical that uh, even if you don't know the the words to it, which are kind of awful, um, but uh, 
it it is it is lyrical in a pure sense where you have the you have the thoughts in your mind you have the lyrics in your mind that you are filling in and it is such a a bold statement for this movie to have a preparatory time to get the audience in a wider space uh in their minds and it's it's magical i don't i don't think there's a it? piece of music are we going to sing it come on no, no you want oh, well the, that's the the alexander courage thing has the lyrics i don't think that Aaliyah's theme has it the does. lyrics. It, does. It, does. It, does. Yeah. it does ready yes. okay we're gonna teach oh Ashley. my god okay. There's a star, star beyond young time, time floating, floating in space. In space Why did waiting for you, for you and me. me? I didn't need to Though know this. the planets, <laughs> planets are far, love is a bridge. Love is a bridge. Joining the galaxy. By the way, why don't you tell Not Ashley who sang this song? Sean oh, Cassidy. Sean Cassidy. No way. Yeah. Yes, it blew my mind. The, are you ready for the chorus? Come with me. We'll conquer the unknown where no one's ever flown. <laughs> the one star that will make our own. It's where the awful. universe ends. We should have shot okay, the world begins. Where's Jamie Farr with the, the gong? gong. I didn't even hear this till La La Land. Was it La La Land that put out the yes. soundtrack album with yes. them? Oh my it didn't God. exist for me until I heard that. There's no, at least two other recording. There's at least two other recordings of it. There's a disco version that has the has the lyrics in it too, oh. and uh, there's a couple different Short versions out there. But uh, it's uh, it's it it really well, takes it's... a lot to ruin this theme, and and those <laughs> recordings do it. Okay. I was gonna say, like, until I knew all of that, I was gonna, you know, uh, my opinion. It's the it's the best piece of music in that score for that film. Um, hmm. It's one of my very favorite uh, bits of, uh, of of Star Trek film music. Period. Um, it is incredibly emotional. And in all the ways, you know, I was talking about with the first contact theme um, or with the Alexander Courage theme, that it is actually Star Trek uh, in a very to, important way. It speaks to me deeply. And if you um, come with me, we'll conquer the unknown where no one's ever flown. <laughs> yeah, we'll exactly. We'll I feel like we could do that. Ends, our world begins. Oh my God, stop it. You're ruining this song for me. Why is this <laughs> happening? What is wrong with you? I mean, it's just, it's terrific, and um, and you know the, the the fact that the movie opened like that. I was with Rob. It's like it it was like nothing um, that I had I had heard before, uh, and um, it really just it, it set the table so perfectly in the theater. Um, and now I think it works even better with the uh, with the director's edition because the movie that follows is as great as the music that sets it up. Yeah, I especially love the. My favorite part is just the whole ending, the way how it transitions into the, the March theme, just suggesting that uh, before you get the actual March. And he was a particular genius at do, at doing that, at, at weaving in, you know, suggestions of what to come. He had an incredible sense of architecture, and even you know, with this. Uh, overture that's disconnected from the film. He figured out a way to make it flow seamlessly into what was going to follow it. Yeah. And no. lest we lest we forget that this is one of the early pieces of music that he wrote that was not thrown out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, this remained intact 
from his early uh, his early cues that uh, that Robert Wise said didn't have a theme in them, um, but uh, this of course did, and of course it wasn't it wasn't right for the main theme of the movie, but it certainly uh, flows in and out of the film uh, in very graceful way. Jeff, do you think that Jerry benefited from, you know, obviously we've talked at length, everyone's familiar with all the delays and, and uh, shooting yeah, and editing. Uh, yes, the, uh, this, I was going to actually talk about this for the, the you know, for <laughs> the, the next thing we're going to talk about, but but that's very much so hold true. That, hold that thought. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about thought. the next piece. Because um, I know what you're expecting, that, you know, as we get into it, we're getting to the very top of the list, number three, you're probably saying, where is faith of the heart? <laughs> well, you're in for a disappointment because unfortunately, Faith of the Heart at this juncture has not made our countdown. Um, what? But what has but made remember, our countdown? Remember, there's honorary mentions. Honorary mentions. That's true. There's honorary <laughs> but mentions. But also, that so wasn't even written for Star Trek. <laughs> right, it was, right. Well, it's the number one Patch Adams song. <laughs> Your number one Patch Adams song. <laughs> so um, uh, when we do that countdown, it'll be on it. But uh, our number three pick. And, and 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 you guys, you know, you talked about this, and I I just want to say, I remember I got had the album before I saw the movie before because it came out before and I I I wore the grooves out on it. Um, I could not wait for that opening day. And what you said about Ilya's theme is so true. It's so hard to convey to people who weren't there what it was like sitting in a theater after ten years. And we had waited and heard all these stories. Star Trek was coming back. It was coming back. It's not coming back. It's coming back. And here you were sitting in a theater at last. And Star Trek, it was, a, you were about to see the first new two hours of Star Trek, you know, in 10 years. Since right? we were I two mean, years old. <laughs> well, it, it, it <laughs> seemed extraordinary. 10 years seemed like a lifetime. Yeah. Right? It was hard to imagine that it beat all the odds and come back. And that was this that was getting all this attention lavished on it. Uh, you know, we hear uh, Ilya's beautiful theme. But of course, as we know, Star Trek The Motion Picture was a rollicking action adventure film. No, it was not. But from, <laughs> you may be, you may, may be uh, 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 convinced that it was from this first piece of music because after the main title, it, segs, it segues into this really remarkable sequence, which is a virtuoso sequence visual effects wise with uh, John Dykstra's apogee uh, in which the Klingons go up against V'ger in a hopeless battle against the cloud. Um, but what makes this so remarkable is Jerry Goldsmith's brilliant score for Klingon attack. to say 
this to me was the music that I always hummed really badly to this day. I would just go, that, that, that. No, I didn't, I didn't go like that. I would, I would go, that, dun, 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 dun. And I, <laughs> I was obsessed by that. I listened to that constantly. I just couldn't get enough of that Klingon, that Klingon attack music. It is so, it captures the vastness of the cosmos, um, the, the, um, the, 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 the brutal, warlike um, nature of the Klingons who just felt like, you know, we're, you know, we're going to have no problem taking out. We got three of these bitch and Katinga battle cruisers only to find out that they, it was a hopeless battle as they were wiped down. Of course, the, the, the visual of the sound effects in this sequence are also amazing. But uh, this is just such a, rem a remarkably memorable thing. Of course, it was a, a piece of music that, again, would, would find favor with Jerry. Sometimes, not necessarily in the most appropriate sequences, because it kind of became war steam, which, eh, you know, uh, in first contact, is, eh, uh, you know, but it's such a beautiful piece of music. Who can quibble? Anyway, our pick for number three is uh, from Star Trek The Motion Picture, Klingon Attack by the great Jerry Goldsmith. You guys, uh, Jeff, tell us what, what makes this piece so unique. Uh, I just remember seeing this uh, and between the you know, the effects shots and this music, I, you know, I was like just I I was going out of my mind with excitement. It was so much better. And, and then when they, you know, they cut to this gigantic space station, you were just blown away by the scope of of, of what you were seeing. And, you know, what I was going to say about uh, how Jerry had to score this movie because you know the the, the post-production of this movie the whole production was so screwed up uh and post-production and scoring was dragged out over months and months and uh, often they were just sitting around on the stage <laughs> with nothing to do and no no visual effects footage to score to and i think that that really did affect what the score became and 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 Jerry even said this in, in a couple of interviews that I, I think the score might have been a more cohesive thing something a little bit more monothematic uh, that all kind of felt more of the same uh if if he hadn't had so much time between scoring the, these different mm -hmm. sequences and you know he he scored a bunch of stuff at the beginning and then had to go back to the drawing board and redo the you know the dry dock sequence and the launch sequence and what you wind up getting is like literally strange new worlds there's all sorts of different cultures and feelings uh that are all built into the score and because he's such a brilliant composer he's able to create an architecture and a coherent you know symphonic uh feeling with all these pieces of music that are wildly wildly different you've got this you know very strident percussive march that's sort of like militaristic but it's not really because star fleet's not you know military you've got the the ilea theme the, this like cosmic love theme you got the you know in the first few minutes of the movie you have this klingon music which is this barbaric klingon culture you have the sound of v'ger this bla blaster beam well, which i was is just gonna ask completely... you is that a marvelous punctuation to this piece when the klingon yeah. ships are are destroyed and what? nothing is left the vastness and emptiness of space and this blaster beam hits and you really get a sense of like the empty 
cosmos. That yeah. Everything's gone. Well, remember the, you know, inception and the, the Brahm sound yeah. that, 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 that goes really back to the, I mean, Goldsmith sort of invented that something so like j with such an incredible impact, it just destroys every other sound around it. Uh, a and, funky and, bass line. Yeah, yeah, it, and it, yeah, it works as like almost. It sounds like a bass electric guitar at some parts. It sounds like this just just alien gong uh, at other parts. It it it, it creates like these glissandos of like growling sounds. It, it just is a completely alien voice, and he figured out. That you know, this is the voice of Vidra. There's uh, the, there's symphonic music for V. You know, there's there's music for the cloud. There's the, this minimalist, you know, material for the this energy cloud. There's this the this kind of giant, heavy, slow piece of music that's just sort of about uh, Vidra's intelligence, and it's you know, it sort of suggests it's potential to evolve you've got this you know, these beautiful flowing nautical music for space stations i mean this score encapsulates so many ideas uh but at every moment in the score every moment in the film the music is reflecting what's going on and enhancing and, and helping you to understand this this very elaborate story in this whole universe. I, I you know even going back to the original show when these composers worked on the show, there was nothing like Star Trek had ever been done. It's like how what the hell is this? How how do we write music for this entire concept of like you know this galactic civilization? It's amazing that. Any of these composers figured out how to do this, but Goldsmith was probably the pinnacle of somebody who had such great experience in science fiction and and drama, uh, even special effects. That that he he just was the person to do this. Darren, score. can you tell us? Because a lot of people in the audience may not know the Star Trek connection to the blaster beam. Can you tell us a little uh, just about how that connects to Star Trek history? Well, uh, yeah, and then I have a little more about the, the Klingon attack music. But um, the blaster beam was uh, invented and played by uh, a man who called himself Craig Huxley, uh, who in his earlier life was called Craig Hundley, and he was a, a child actor. And he actually appeared twice on the original series, uh, once as uh, Captain Kirk's nephew, uh, uh, in, uh, the, uh, space brain, uh, uh Operation uh, Annihilate. Operation Annihilate. And then in, and the children shall lead, where he was a little older and taller. Uh, he was one of the kids from, uh, from the colony. Um, and he invented this. It's basically a giant electric guitar that you play with a, uh, a, uh, artillery shell. An artillery <laughs> shell. Yes. Jesus. Do you uh, fire the artillery shell at the no, you, you hit it. It's a tube got, and you hit it. I got to see it when we uh when we went to uh uh the Hollywood Bowl when John Mauchery was playing sections of the motion picture score along with the uh movie the w first released the uh director's edition uh, clips and uh there it was. It was. It's this, you know, like uh, twelve feet long aluminum box with uh, big bass guitar strings on it, and uh, it's uh, uh, you know connected to an amplifier. And you would take this shell and, like a uh, like a Hawaiian guitar, you would 
hit it and then move it along the strings to change the pitch. So mm-hmm. you'd hit it and boom. And you brought it, it back for first contact too. Uh, yeah, I I don't think that it is. It, it, it might have been a. It, it, it yeah, might have been a version of it. Yeah, I think it was a kind of right. version. Yeah, Horner used it in yes. in uh, Rathacon, and uh, I'm not sure and, about and Battle Beyond the Stars. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's very much in that. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, it's it's an amazing uh, instrument, and it certainly is the voice of Viger. Uh, but if you enjoy the Klingon attack music and you enjoy those themes. This is basically a uh, a cribbed version of Jerry Goldsmith's score for the Wind and the Lion. Right. Um, it's it, the the uh, the motifs that you hear in this are extremely similar. And Wind of the Lion is actually orchestrated much more densely and uh, fascinatingly. Um, uh, if you have uh, a chance, go listen to that because it's yeah, it's also it's very an similar. Incredible score. Okay, well, longtime listeners of this podcast may be surprised to hear our next pick as we go back in time to 1984, but you shouldn't be because we've never denied the majesty and brilliance of Jeff Bond. We deny Bond. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> the majesty and brilliance of Jeff Bond. <laughs> uh, we've never, we, there's one element of this film we've never denied the potency of, and Jeff Bond is about to tell us what our number two pick of the greatest Star Trek music ever is. Uh, Well, this is Stealing the Enterprise from Star Trek III by James Horner. I would probably quibble between this and and Battle in the Matara Nebula from Wrath of Khan, but I think what, what you have an honorary uh, mention for. But I, I yeah, I, I think what you can say is that the overall score, you know, for for Wrath of Khan is is incredibly exciting. If you want to talk about a piece of music that has the most impact in a movie. Uh, stealing the Enterprise, I, I, I think, is a great choice because it is—it's such an incredibly rousing moment after you know a mo- movie where it's things are pretty subdued. We're sad about Spock being gone. You know, Kirk, Kirk is miserable. The Enterprise is beaten up, uh, and then finally you get to see Kirk uh, get his crew back together and and you know, get their ship back and, and, you know, be chased by this asshole James Sicking uh, uh, with his writing crop. Uh, it's it's just swagger like, stick. It, swagger, it's stick. swagger stick. Swagger <laughs> stick. It, it's uh, just the way this piece builds up, you know, st- is starting off with the, the Alexander Courage music and then just 
gradually bringing this more and more energy. And by the time they get the enterprise through those doors, you know, you, you really just have the audience completely in the palm of your hand. People, I think, are cheering by this point. So it's easily the most exciting piece of music in the in this movie it's it's the the energy high point of the movie and it it just shows how great horner was at at uh you know he captured a, a very different kind of star trek feel it was a little more militaristic you know fit in with uh nick myers and uh, uh the the whole kind of retro feel of of it uh and he, he was a great great c- composer an incredibly young guy and he sat in on, uh, you know, Goldsmith's uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture Sessions as as a very young composer and was asked specifically to steal that for Battle Beyond the Stars. And he, he did a brilliant job uh, at kind of coming up with his own approach to that. Uh, and that was just a reissue and an expanded Yeah, and it, which is, is fantastic. It, it kind of fixed it so, it sounds so good that all the terrible performances are kind of fixed. They They, they kind of found all the bad parts and switched them out with with better performances this, so this cue in star trek 3 is very interesting because um not only is it everything that jeff bond says it was but the the movie version is different than the one you hear on the soundtrack right uh because uh the movie version starts out very quietly with just a little pulse dun 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 dun, dun. on the soundtrack however you hear a cacophony of uh, horrific violin runs that are going along with this that are a direct ripoff of Tchaikovsky's uh, Romeo and Juliet. Um, is it is it Romeo and Juliet? I, I think, think so, yes. Um, but it's it's note for note. Uh, but yeah. it's, it's hilarious because in the movie, it's not ripped off. It's just, it's perfect for the scene. So I, I don't know exactly which came first. If he if he thought of Romeo and Juliet first and then decided to take it out because it was too busy. Um, it's an interesting question that I don't know the answer to. What came to. first, the chicken or Tchaikovsky? I, I assume that, that was... That was the music for, um, you know, Sulu flipping the guy or something. Yeah, that's where the it starts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The chicken... Yeah. I also have to say, Jeff, that you really nailed it when you said rousing piece of music because when it finally kicks in to this, like, muscle, beefy, the Enterprise is backing out of the space dock yeah. doors and, beep, you know, bum, 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 bum. I mean, yeah. I'm like, I want to yeah. jump up in my seat. Yeah. yeah. It's the best moment yeah. for me of the entire film. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. I mean, look, first of all, I think that, uh, that there's a... There's probably a lot of really good reasons why James Horner is kind of underrepresented on this list, or there might be a perception of that. I think partly because there's a there's a lot of cribbing that goes on with uh, with, with James Horner, but like this is a particularly great uh, piece of music that is 100% something that you can associate with Star Trek. Right? It's not like when you watch Aliens and you're suddenly hearing like you know. Klingons and Khan, you know. But what I really want to add, you know, to to this conversation about this sequence and this piece of music and just about how how great it is is, um, look, you guys know uh, I'm a metalhead, and uh, I, I need to tell you that uh, that if you start 
that sequence, like exactly where this cue begins. And instead of the James Horner cue, you play Breaking the Law by Judas Priest. It totally cooks, man. It matches it exactly. One of my friends did that in college, and I loved it. It was just like that moment when you're watching, you know, The Wizard of Oz, and you realize, oh, if you take Dark Side of the Moon and you start playing it when, like, you know, the logo pops up, it totally works. It totally works here. So, friends Mr. out there Wednesday, in the yeah, <laughs> like, go out, like, start Judas Priest breaking the law yeah. when they're stealing the Enterprise uh, We're not going to do that, begins, Ashley. And you will not be disappointed. Wow, maybe I'll do War Pigs by Black Sabbath instead. Yeah, that Just won't fit. Timing's all wrong. Fit. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Sounds great. Thanks for bringing that to our attention, Ed. <laughs> <It's> awesome. <laughs> you know, and I have to say, for those of you who say, you said that maybe James Horner isn't as well represented. It shows how competitive this list is yeah. because there's no question that his music for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and, and, and Search for Spock are great. great. They're both great, great scores. And it's just that there's so much great film music uh, across the many series and movies that, uh, you know, getting it down to 10 is very challenging. But the good news is we have honorary mentions to address some of those omissions. So, Jeff, I turn to you. What's your pick for honorary mention for greatest Star Trek music? Well, uh, we... I would probably swap out the first contact theme for the Voyager theme. which I like actually better as a piece of music. And it actually made me watch every episode of Star Trek Voyager, uh, regardless of its wildly varying and usually lousy quality. But uh, I just, it's it's got the greatest, you know, title sequence, uh, at least up to that time. And uh, Goldsmith wrote this fantastic piece of music for it. Well, I know we're not doing the best Star Trek title sequences, but what's a better Star Trek title sequence than Voyager? <laughs> I, I, I can't I, think. I, I, of, yeah, I can't think of, of one. Um, yeah, it, yeah. Okay. It, it's and and that, but it's you know, it's a fantastic melding of music and and imagery. And uh, you know, if you just had to watch the title sequence, it would have been a great show. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> you know what? Though I think you're right. It's a great theme. The whole show. Do you know what I don't like about it though? The beginning of it, I don't like the like the horn, the 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 muted horn. I don't. I don't like that. I don't like. It belongs in a jazz piece, not in a Star Trek theme. That's the only thing about it that belongs in a circus, me. not a starship. Spot. It irks me. I mean, it's the only it thing that diminishes. You. It's a great theme. It's a great it opening. You. Oh damn! But man. it doesn't have the grandeur to me that the even though first contact was written after that theme was. Mm. So interesting. Well, I have to say, I wouldn't go as far as Jeff when he said I would replace for his contact, but as an honorary <laughs> mention, this came very close to being my honorary mention as well. I'm a mm. big fan of the Voyager theme. I, I thought it was great that they, you know, after Dennis McCarthy wrote 
um, Deep Space Nine, they went to Jerry, they went to the man to do uh, Voyager, and he delivered big time. And, you know, Rob and I have talked about this on the show. I think we went to uh, Paramount to see the uh, Voyager uh, premiere at the Paramount Theater. And based on that two-hour caretaker premiere, I, you know, much to my chagrin, said, this could be the best Star Trek ever. Yeah. That didn't last long, unfortunately. <laughs> Did not age well. <laughs> no, I'm glad I don't have that on tape. Um, okay. So, uh, so uh, thank you, Jeff. Jeff's pick, Star Trek Voyager, main title by Jerry Goldsmith, which brings us to Rob Burnett's and his honorary mention for best Star Trek music ever. Hey, this is going to make me seem like a big sap, but yeah. I'm going to do it anyway. And it's a piece of music that, again, when I said when I was a kid playing in my head, uh, I'm going to go all the way back to the first season of the original series. And I'm going to go back to my man, Gerald Freed, who knows how to wield a flute. And I'm going to pick a piece of music from Shore Leave. Ruth's theme. And I have to tell you, every time I ever kissed a girl, and I've kissed a lot of girls in my life, that theme plays in my head. Wow. And the thing is, here's the thing about this theme. It starts out as incredibly romantic. And then, like, if you listen to this track, I remember this from the first, um, the GNP Crescendo yeah. record. And then about a minute in, it, goes it turns into, into the most horribly romantic tragedy ever. Ever, Heart, it, yeah, it breaks it's into like heartbreak. the death of the death of Juliet. You know, it's she, yeah. she drinks her poison. I mean, it's so so that part. I mean, it's still great, but the entire piece of music is it's not typical Star Trek. But on one hand, it's so it's it like encompasses every lost love James Kirk ever had. You know, and what's so interesting is that the character of Ruth in this, even though I know she's an image of Ruth, she's a facsimile of Ruth, there's something about Ruthless. her that's different that's different than any of Kirk's women. She's like this ethereal goddess who came down from Mount Olympus. Right. You know, and, and a black and white cookie. I mean, she is is with her big hair. Moon cookie, Darren. Moon I don't know. Cookie. This piece of music kills Moon me, man. Cookie. It kills me. It kills me every time I hear it. And um uh, I just, I just love it. And it was so good they used it for Spock, uh, Spock's adventures with the spores. Yes, yeah, they did. You know, Rob, I, I do have to tell you that uh, that what you just said about thinking about it whenever you kissed girl is so you. And now I'm sort of imagining the progression. It goes from Ruth's theme da, 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 to a muck time. Da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> and back to Ruth. I'll never tell. <laughs> or the doomsday in, machine. Deep in the plactow, the blood fever. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I, I have to say another great pick. And it, it's funny, I think we've all been lucky enough in our travels to have some great Star Trek experiences with the cast with the movies to be very 
much in this world of um, of Star Trek. But one of my favorite memories of uh, one of these events that we were uh, a, a part of was um, at the premiere of the La La Land uh, set that Jeff Bond worked on, uh, the, uh, the, the, the complete TOS collection. They did a screening of two episodes at the American Cinematheque and playing live was the late Gerald Freed, not at the time. He played, and he played selections from Shirley live at the Egyptian Theater for the audience. And it was just a really special evening that night. And the Paradise Syndrome. Yeah. And the Paradise Syndrome, yep. Yeah. Which is another beautiful score, which could have easily made our list. Yeah. It's so funny, I got to tell you, I have a short list of honorary mentions, and I had Star Trek Voyage for main title, the Paradise Syndrome, and Shirley. So, uh, and, 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 and also uh, Battle of the Ventura Nebula, which I'm not going to pick because uh, Jeff um, cited it earlier. Um, Ashley, we turn to you for your honorary mention, uh, best Star Trek mu music of all time. It's been a long road. I'm kidding. It's it's not been a long road getting at all. From here Screw to there. that song. Uh, yeah. Getting from there to here, some goddamn thing. Uh, no, actually. Okay, so I was on record earlier uh, I believe that I said that the music for the next generation should be hauled away as garbage. Uh, however, comma, my honorary mention is actually a, a piece. Really, it's 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 an entire score from the next generation. Uh, Jay Chataway's debut on the next generation uh, for the episode Tin Man. Um, which is, mm. I think, quite a lovely episode uh, that I really, I've, I've always uh, kind of loved and enjoyed. Um, and one of the things that stood out to me almost immediately the first time I watched that episode was Jay Chataway's score, because it was unlike anything The Next Generation had done. It really did feel like a film score. It really does have emotional content. Um, and it functions the way that I want a score to function, right? It's part of the storytelling, it's part of the cinematic experience. It has movements, uh, it has themes that kind of come in and go out. The fact that Jay Chataway got away with it, and I think was probably just a, a function of the post schedule and the fact that he'd never done it before and it was all kind of a Hail Mary to do that episode in the first place. Um, but but I love it. I think it's just a it's a it's a terrific listen. It really enhances the episode, and it's just one of those episodes that I actually enjoy just going back and, and watching because it's just it's a full it's a full experience. Yeah, he mm. could have scored any of and all of his episodes like that, but they told him not to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and by yeah. the way, uh, exactly. Tin Man is a Barry Levinson movie. Tin Man is a Star Trek episode. <laughs> I said Tin Man. I thought you said Tin Men. No, I know it's singular. Okay. Didn't Very I? good. Well, you know what? Jessica Von Puttermaker. Ha! There you go. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, that's a great pick. That's a great pick. I mean, Jay Chataway really came uh, uh, came to play. And then, you know, he sort of uh, was restrained. But that's a terrific score. Um, you know, and, and obviously he went on to do a lot more Star Trek. Um, oh, yeah. But Tin, Tin Man, which has, shares a lot of... Um, Similarities to Star Trek Motion Pictures is actually uh, it's one of those underrated episodes that we may talk about during our 
um, most underrated Star Trek episodes. Um, yeah, no, it's great. Jeff, you're a fan of Jay Chataways? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like his, I like actually a lot of his, I thought he did some great Dominion War music for mm-hmm. Deep Space yeah. Nine. Yeah. Uh, he, he's a terrific composer. And, the, you know, these guys figured out how to work under the constraints of Rick Berman and do as much as they could, but... Uh, yeah, work within the system. Yeah. I got to yeah. give a shout out because Jay Chataway, I knew who he was because he scored Maniac. <laughs> nice. The yeah. Joe Spinell, Caroline yeah. Monroe movie that Bill Lustig yeah. directed. Yeah, yeah, nice. That was the first time yeah. I ever heard it, and it was it was a great horror score. And he did some uh, um, Chuck Norris movies too, I think. Can't go wrong with Chuck. Nope, it old chuckles. Okay, Darren, <laughs> we come to you. Honorary mention for greatest Star Trek music of all time. Uh, I'm gonna uh, go briefly off board because, in addition to my main uh, honorary mention, I have a side one which I think needs to be recognized from the animated series the cue that goes Not only was it heard over and over and over again in the series, but you also heard it on, uh, I believe, uh, Emergency Plus One and Lassie and uh, uh, various other... Uh, uh, Filmation. Norm Prescott, Lou Scheimer productions. Um, it's just so ingrained uh, because it was repeated so often. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. even if uh, even if no one has seen the uh, animated show in decades which they probably haven't, uh, if you hum that to them, they will immediately remember it. Yeah, they wrote, you know, uh, Ray Ellis wrote like 30 right. minutes of music. You know, he yeah. basically wrote one episode. Uh, and that's the music you hear throughout the whole series. They didn't make that many episodes of, of TAS, but uh, that's all the music. So yeah. even more so than the original show, you got that drummed into your head if you're watching that. Absolutely. This is crazy because that was also on my list. Like you guys are like literally going down my, it's a good thing I picked so many different <laughs> we, options. We think much alike, Captain. Um, but my my actual honorary mention is, of course, uh, Sandy Courage's main theme for the original show.
it is, uh, it is in fact iconic all by itself because you start playing that. And even if you, uh, haven't watched Star Trek at all, you know it because it is so, uh, imprinted in our popular culture, uh, that it is, uh, it is famous without, uh, uh, without having to be seen almost. Uh, and, you know, of course, uh, Alexander Courage was a stable of the MGM uh, music department for so many years. He he orchestrated uh, a ton of uh, the famous MGM musicals back in the day, and uh, he was a uh, a legendary composer. Uh, and when he was given the task of uh, doing the theme for Star Trek, um, he immediately thought of this. Uh, this old song, uh, "Beyond the Blue Horizon," uh, that uh, that he thought of ha- that had a soaring sort of uh, lilt to it. Uh, Beyond the blue horizon, and it had beyond the rim of the starlight. Uh, my love yeah. is wandering in starflight. But it also had bongos in it, uh, and this so was a Desi Lu production. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and of course, uh, you know, Wilbur Hatch was still very active in the Desi yeah. Lu music department. Yeah. Who had done the you know uh, uh, I Love Lucy theme? So there is a, a very direct connection to that, um, and he orchestrated for Jerry Goldsmith, for John Williams, yep. you know, for many years. Yeah. And you have to give him credit; he was the first guy who had to figure out how to score Star Trek. He for- scored yeah. the first two pilots or early first season episodes. He didn't do a huge amount for the show. Uh, but you, I could probably pick at least five cues that you know you would immediately recognize that yeah. he he did. Look, at the end of the day, it's what you said about a mock time, how iconic and how memorable it is. There's really probably no more memorable uh, theme from Star Trek than that main title. Yeah, when, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's so perhaps, well known. Perhaps none as difficult to sing, right? <laughs> but um. <laughs> What's interesting too about that is, um, you know, in addition to to being memorable, I think the reason I'm not, other than that piece of music, a huge fan of Sandy Courage's music, is because Gene told, if I'm not mistaken, Courage, uh, you know, to write like in Forbidden Planet, right, or not to write like not Forbidden to write Planet. like Forbidden, not, Planet. not like to write, write like Forbidden Planet, but it, it feels very fifties, whereas the um, the music that was to come, Fred Steiner. And 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 Jerry Fielding and 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 so it was much more. It, it escaped kind of that the old fashioned sci fi movie tropes. I don't to, know. To- Actually, you know, Steiner and uh, and uh, Gerald Fried uh, were sort of writing in like the forties uh, uh, mode. Uh, to be honest, I mean it, the the uh, the the lyricism of uh, Sandy Courage um, was actually a little more advanced than that. And but he wasn't really his, writing character themes. He was just, you know, the way oh, they, sure they he was. Would. They just weren't used over and over again. Mm. They, there's tons of character uh, themes in Where No Man Has Gone Before. They just weren't used again. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's extremely complicated and they aren't as simple uh, to be broken down. I think if he had worked on more of the episodes, that would have come through uh, better. 
Some uh, of the best uh, stuff that he did, my favorite stuff of his, is actually the library music he wrote for the second season that they used well, in uh, uh, Mirror Mirror. The you know the yeah. whole uh, "Be the Captain of the Enterprise" speech, yes. the music that rises up under that, and the fight music uh, in that the the sick bay fight music, which mm -hmm. it's based on the um, uh, "Where No Man Has Gone Before" fight, but it's much more exciting. Right. Uh, and there's a some big Enterprise flyby cues, and he also wrote. Uh, you know, a score I don't love too much, uh, which is the last one he did for the show, which is uh, uh, um, the what's the the Socrates Society? What's Plato's Stepchildren? Right. Uh, the the ending the of that. Society. 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 Yeah. But the, the, if you listen to the end of that, it's like he knew this was the it's like I'm going to make my final majestic statement about Star Trek. It's this fantastic, huge piece of music for the Enterprise flying off. And that that was the last thing he wrote for the show. He could write fantastic things, but I agree his style. I, I don't think I could pick a whole score of his that I love, but I could pick a dozen cues of, yeah. of his that are my are my favorites. It's hard not to have a list of great Star Trek music without that that unforgettable main title. Yeah, although the you know the fanfare that da 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 da, da, da is actually might have been something that that he overheard being performed for the show Twelve O'clock High. Mm. If you if you if you listen <laughs> to that 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 theme is in a in. A, there's an album of, of music from that uh, that La La Land put out, and you can hear at least half a dozen times, like, wow, that's really <laughs> that fanfare. Mm. And there, there's a sh shot of B-17s flying over where they play a huge version of it. And that was recorded at 20th Century Fox around the time when uh, Courage was working on Daniel Boone and a bunch of, and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, a bunch of 20th Century Fox shows. So he was likely around when uh, Dominic Frontier was uh, recording uh, mm -hmm. that music, and it's it's very similar. <laughs> so, well, if there had been a 12 o'clock high, the motion picture, motion <laughs> picture. That would have been a problem. Would well, have been a problem. You guys have picked so much great music or mentioned so much great music. You know, it really, I'm really wrestling with the, the honorary picks. Some of them you, you picked like, uh, uh, Shore Leave and Voyager main title. Um, and, uh, obviously I, I just, you know, Hor you know, do you, Horner's Kirk's explosive reply and Battle of the Mutera Nebula are both great. At the very beginning of the show, Rob mentioned, uh, a pick, which almost was my honorary mention until he mentioned it. Um, uh, from Star Trek 2009, Enterprising Young Men. And I think, Rob, you pointed out, Regardless of what you think of the JJ movies, Michael Giacchino did a, an excellent job. These are, they're great scores, uh, particularly yeah. the first two, 2009 Into Darkness Beyond, I think a little less so, um, unless you're a big Rihanna fan. And, um, uh, you know, I think you could easily pick, there's a lot of Stephen Barton's music for Picard that's terrific. The yeah, the, the Titan theme, I think, is, it could become iconic. You know, yeah. names mean everything is a great cue. Let's go home. No win scenario. All, all great. Um, I, and and I, so for me, it came down to: Do I pick Jerry Fielding's score to the Wild Bunch, aka Spectre the Gun, <laughs> uh, which I came very, very close to? But I, I'm going to go with um, 
uh, a Star Trek composer doesn't necessarily always get his due, but um, he was hired because he was cheap and because he could knock off the planets. And he did a phenomenal job with uh, one of Darren's least favorite movies. And of course, I'm talking about uh, Star Trek VI. My pick for honorary mention is Assassination. from Star Trek Six by Cliff Eidelman. It's a great piece. Yeah, That whole score is great. Yeah, it's a terrific yep. score. And it's a terrific it's score, but it's not Star Trek. Yes, that, that oh, is. Yes, it is. Well, Cliff <laughs> yes, Eidelman <it> <laughs> talks about, and I think this is true, he said, unlike the other movies which were scored for the heroes, he scored it for the Klingons. So yeah, it's yeah. a much darker score. And of course, this was, um, Nick Meyer had the not entirely great idea of, 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 of scoring it with the... the, the um, with Hulse the Planets, and when that became too expensive to license, uh, and, and also, I'm sure, didn't work exactly right, he just said, I'll find somebody who can knock off the planets, right. and found Cliff Eidelman, who really does a terrific job uh, with the score for that uh, movie. It's very different than what Jerry Goldsmith did. It's very different than what James Horner did. It's mercifully different from what Leonard Rosenman did, oh, and um, and it's a, it's a terrific score. Um, and, which I'm a big fan of. And of course, he also put together, some of you may remember the Astral Symphony, which was basically a best yep. of greatest hits for Star yeah. Trek, but it's very well done. Um, and, and it features music from all the Star Trek movies. It's like the best of the Bond songs, except this is the best of the uh, symphonic Star Trek pieces. One what of do you my think, favorite. Jeff? Uh, Sorry, I, go ahead, Darren. What do I, I think? I was going to say, oh. one, of, one of my favorite uh, themes from Star Trek VI is. I guess it's Spock's theme. I guess it's the it's so beautiful yeah. and so unlike everything else in the in the score that uh, it really stands out for me. And I I, I heard it da, the first da, time. Da, da. Yeah, I heard it the first time in that uh, trailer uh, that was a uh, an early uh, version of it. It was a temp version of it. And uh, I just loved it so much. I, I tried to pick it out on my synthesizer to figure it out. But uh, mm. I, I, I love that section of the score. Yeah, that's a, it's a really beautiful, you know, when they get out on the ice. And yeah. the, the, it's a really beautiful piece. And I, there's a little tiny piece of music that I love that's right at the end of the story when, you know, Kirk uh, basically saves the day. And there's this kind of Americana. It's like, da, da, da. Yeah. It sounds like a lot like Alex North, mm. uh, the uh, Cheyenne Autumn uh, score, which I asked uh, Eidelman about. He said he'd never heard it, but it's just Americana. Uh, and and then, you know, you hear his version finally of, of you hear it at the when they go out of the space dock. But there's, you know, very little real kind of Star Trek you know, enterprise music in the score. Because like you said, it, it's more from the perspective of the Klingons. But once he, he gets to his enterprise music, it's it's pretty good. You can see mm -hmm. how they could have done a whole music, movie that way. Well, Jeff, your book on the music of Star Trek is an essential book. Uh, just amazing stories about how all these scores uh, were made over the years. So I presume that in this expanded edition, you're going to cover the more recent iterations. Yeah, yeah, show? yeah, yeah. I've talked to... Uh, 
the composers for you know Barton and um, uh, Jeffrey. Yeah, yeah, I got yeah. I, I, I talked to everybody. I think, uh, and I, uh, you know, what's really fun is the Chris Westlake for Lower Decks. Uh, that, 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 that's got a nice theme and there's a lot of, I mean, he was talking about, uh, the music for the Orions being based on like Rodrigo, the uh, Spanish composer, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting. So he's actually got some cool ideas. And uh, I said, you know, I saw the first few episodes of that. Like that guy could capture like the t- next generation feeling, mm. you know, just in the first like four seconds of any episode, he's able to immediately make you feel like you're in the, you know, next generation world. So th- those it's scores funny are funny you say fun. that because that's another piece that could have easily been an honorary mentioned. I think for any of us, Avita's dance from the cage. Yep. Yeah, and in fact, that was the first piece of, uh, and although it's really a piece of source music, but it, that was kind of the first real. Star Trek Q that got out into the world that was it was included. I don't even remember. Darren, do you remember what the album was? It was some GNP sampler. Yeah. They stuck that and it's like, oh my God, you're actually getting to hear a, you know Star Trek music on a right. CD. Uh so it was probably an LP at that at that point. Uh but yeah, that's you know, it was reused. It, it was uh there was a whole Edgar Rice Burroughs thing uh and and i i still wanted to write a whole essay on just like green great green women of the 60s because there's like a, <laughs> it was a whole thing going on there that and I, I i guess it goes back i guess this was something edgar rice burroughs i haven't read enough of him to know how many green women he had in his mm. books but i think that's might have been where roddenberry got that idea well i have to say i'm sure everybody's anxious and, and most people probably have already guessed uh, what our number one pick for the greatest Star Trek music of all time is. This is a, a piece of music that showed up on many collections, albums, Musics of the Galaxies. You know, you couldn't pick up one of these, you know, back in the days of vinyl, there are all these great, greatest sci-fi music of all time. There are two tight pieces of music that would be on all of them. It was Star Wars, and it was this next piece of music. Darren, tell us what our number one pick for the greatest Star Trek music of all time is. Our number one pick is a little ditty, and it goes something like this. No, uh, it, uh, it, is, it is the voice of two generations, basically. And it is the main title for Star Trek The Motion Picture from 1979. There is something uh, immediately uh, stirring about it that had never been heard in Star Trek before. It is a it is a triumphant, uh, soaring theme. It is uh, bombastic, but in a in a refined way. It is uh, beautifully structured, 
and it is constantly rising, which is uh, an amazing feat uh, in in composing. Uh, Goldsmith, of course, uh, this was his second or third attempt at doing the theme for the motion picture. Uh, his earlier attempts have the seeds of this theme in it, but it's never really refined. It's never really brought to its uh, climax, so to speak. Um, it is uh, extremely uh, evocative. And when you see those main titles pop up, even in the boring black and white ones in the in the release version, um, it is it knocks you on on your on your ass uh, it, it you know it, i can i can only i used to make a joke of uh goldsmith was late to the recording session and he was running through 20th century fox and finally makes it into the scoring stage and he trips over the podium and then they go boom boom da 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 it's it's so great and uh hearing the la la land release uh, where you hear several recordings of the main title you could hear that the the cue that they picked was the best one of them all and it sounds so good and of course it was used later for the star trek the next generation in a a bit anemic arrangement uh, for a much smaller <laughs> orchestra but uh it's still it still gives you the the thrill and uh you know most people think oh well that's that's the next generation theme well not originally but uh, Jeff, good, can you tell us the evolution of the theme? Because obviously it went through a lot of iterations, as Taryn alluded to. Well, yeah, it was a more of a kind of flowing thing. You you, you can hear that because he was do, writing it for the dry dock theme mm -hmm. and then the launch uh, uh, sequence. And so, you know, he went from, if you listen to the um, space office complex cue, that, that was his approach, uh, you know, the, this kind of flowing de debussy of feeling so that he yeah. was initially that the, the original it started as a it started as a waltz yeah the, the, if you listen to the original launch cue it's not this energetic thing it's like a submarine launching it all feels like it's underwater and then uh, i i think one of the keys to to it is is the that little cello motif that that he wrote because that was not part of the um dry dock sequence that bump 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 and that i think that helped him that notion started him thinking more rhythmically mm -hmm. uh, and he'd also done a movie called players about tennis players and if you watch the the uh it was in 1979 like the spring just before he started working on star trek and the tennis sequences have this kind of bouncy, energetic, uh, not really a march, but it, it, the the energy is the, the way they're using like uh, tambourines or something for for the rhythms in it, and it, it's got the same kind of energy as the, as what he came up with for the the march theme. Rob, he, he realized he had to make a march ultimately. Yeah, Rob, could we have possibly picked any other piece of music for number one? No, I don't think so. And and again, I mean, if I could hark back to my comments about Ilea's theme, what was amazing about this was your I was, you know, I'm in this romantic reverie of of Ilea's theme, the Paramount logo comes up, and then it just hits you in the face. You know, it's bomb bomb. Da -da 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 -da. And if anybody was lulled to sleep by Ilea's theme, you were certainly woken up. And and what was interesting, I mean, obviously, clearly they didn't have a whole lot of time to do the credit sequence for the motion picture. I mean, it's 
until Darren came along and, and gave it a little zhuzh, a little polish. It was a pretty simplistic title sequence. They were but Woody it, Allen titles. Yeah, it just didn't matter. <laughs> they were it, Woody it, Allen. It, yeah. Yeah, and this like, comes on the heels of Superman in 78, yeah. which yeah. had like the greatest <laughs> title sequence yeah. ever. But it's such a great, it's such a great piece of music. And it it really makes a statement because it isn't Star Wars, but it's in the wake of Star Wars. And it 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 comes out and it does something differently than Star Wars did. And like you said, it's got more of that, like that March feel to it. Um, but it's big and brassy and bold. Yeah. And what it did was um because if you think about it. Star Trek was a, let's call it what it is. It was a failed TV show. It was a show that always struggled in the ratings. It uh, fans had to come in and save it for its its third season, and that <laughs> somebody made at the time, including all of its development costs, one of the most expensive movies of all time. It's just amazing it exists at all. So this piece of music, it had to set the tone of what they were trying to do. It, the the fact that they took this TV show and put it on the big screen. Yeah. This piece of music in seconds had to come out and plant its flag and be like, hey, you know what? We're here too, and we're it, here to stay. It heralds the new arrival. Yeah, really that's exactly does. what it does. Are we seeing the birth of a new life form? <laughs> yes. And Darren, would you say, I know very obviously Goldsmith never was thinking of this, but is, is he almost playing with the same notes of the Courage Fanfare? He kind of is. I can hear da, it in da, there. Da, 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 It's, yeah, yeah it's it, almost. You can, I, I was playing around with it in my mind at one of the various points of working on it. Um, and you can fit it in there. You can fit it in almost so that you can play the original series theme along with it yeah. and it melts. Yeah. And it's just, it's very strange because obviously, you know, Jerry knew. Uh, and he didn't Sandy want, Courage. he didn't want, <laughs> it was not his notion to have this, any of the Sandy Courage music yeah. in the first movie. He didn't want that at all. And it was really forced on him. So there's no way he would have said, oh, I want to play around with, with uh, Sandy's theme. No, but it but does he sound got like to it was it rumbling yeah. in his subconscious. It's like his, his version of it, in a way. But doesn't yeah. that Fred, Shiner, uh, Fred Steiner reorchestration of the Alexander Courage theme give you chills when it is? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. It's it's actually Sandy Courage. Oh yeah, that's yeah, oh, he did, oh, yeah, 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 he did. Yep, yeah, he did those okay, himself. So, so I mean, it gives you chills when Steiner did a bunch of other stuff, though. But yeah, but when you hear the the main theme in the movie, it's when everyone is together again, mm. and it it is the reveal of our family back together. They're not at where they should be yet, but it's just the start of it, and it's really magical. Ashley, is there anything else that could have been number one, or is it clearly uh, is this is this is the this is the piece that it had to be? Well, you know, on, on some level, I'm going to be the minority report. Um, I look, I love this piece of music. I think as a piece of music, it's great. Uh, as a Star Trek main title, I, it's always left me cold. I'm just going to be honest. Um, you know, as a as a main title, it is it, it it's not at the level of the Star Wars main title. It's not at the level of of Superman. Um, and I don't know that it reflects Star Trek in the way that um, 
I felt about Star Trek, the way that the Alexander Courage uh, music uh, suggested something about the kind of story that was being told. I felt that the triumphalism was wrong. I felt like a march was wrong. Um, it felt like it, uh, more appropriate to, to something else. Does it work? Sure. Is it a terrific piece of music? Is it a terrific march? Yes. Yes, it is. And and I hope that everything I've said so far in this podcast indicates like my absolute love and veneration of, of Jerry Goldsmith. And I think that he's a genius. Um, do I think that this is playing to to his I don't know that it's even the best Jerry Goldsmith uh piece of music that's that's on this list. Uh because I just I, I just don't know that it it captures for me. What, what Star Trek is. I, I get, look, we all have our own thoughts on kind of what appeals to us and kind of what hits us in certain ways. Um, it evoked no thrill for me, whereas Ilya's theme, like, had me at hello and was perfect and beautiful. And so much of the motion picture score is so perfect. And it captures the film just flawlessly. Uh, and it captures what Star Trek is so flawlessly, and it's and it's lived on forever. Um, I, I do agree; it works even less as the uh, as the main title for uh, for Star Trek: The Next Generation. I, I mean, what would I put ahead of it? I probably would have put the Alexander Courage thing um, as as number one. Darren's honorary mention. Um, again, I, I am not. Uh, I don't mean to take this piece of music down by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but to me, uh, I wouldn't presume to say that it isn't Star Trek because who are we to say? Uh, but I would say that it, it, it doesn't touch me in the same way, um, that other music touches me when I think about what Star Trek is. It's just, it's off for me. Bummer, man. I'm just that guy. I'm, I'm grateful for having your, uh, alternate opinion, honestly. You know, I, I here's think the it's thing. interesting. Here's the thing. Ashley's still on the podcast. We're still friends with him. We didn't shut him down. We didn't turn off his microphone. Not yet. We're allowed to, people <laughs> are allowed to disagree in good conscience. Yeah. If, if, if you can back it up. If you, if you got the goods, if, you, if you're educated about the subject, if you know what you're talking about. I don't agree with Ashley. <laughs> but but it doesn't mean no, okay. that I'm not fascinated by and interested in what he has to say. It's something we can all learn. It's the Star Trek philosophy, isn't it? But I think you're not wrong in that it doesn't represent the story of Star Trek. It right. does represent... No, that was the album with the dialogue. No, no, no. It, <laughs> it does represent the transition of Star Trek. Mm. That is what is triumphant that it overcame its early life and transformed into this new thing. That's Nobody interfered. the theme is. Yeah, okay. And I think that's a, a really interesting perspective on, uh, on, on what that is. I mean, it's, um, and I, I completely buy that intellectually. Again, like this is just one of those things that gets to, um, it's Your not gut. what it's accomplishing. It's the it's the gut exactly. Yeah. It is completely that visceral reaction. You could yep. say it's versus a metamorphosis, <laughs> but we won't. No, we consider won't. that. Wow, 
<laughs> yeah. Um, wow. This that was, was going to uh, be one of my Arnold Laura mentions, actually. I, I metamorphosis. Yeah, love scene no, from metamorphosis. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, obviously that's that also is a beautiful score um, for 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 uh, beet potatoes episode. So, um, well, <laughs> Rob, Rob, you don't agree. Well, you know, it's, I guess I've been trying to gather my thoughts on this one in the sense that I, I kind of understand where Ashley's coming from because, you know, this the the theme to the motion picture is not all-encompassing as to what Star Trek is and can be. Mm-hmm. Like the same way that the the first, I feel like the first contact theme takes you kind of on a journey. Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas this theme is more of a direct one, and it's not one note. The music's not one note, right? But it's only one note of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's only it, to me. It's like when the it, it it it's not the way they did it in the Next Generation, where they you see the Enterprise going to warp. That's what this piece of music is. It's it's going to warp, and it's not about what we're going to find there. It's not about it's it's just about just firing up the engines like let's and go punching it let's go that's boldly what it going. is boldly yeah. going yeah and that's that's what this that's what this piece of music does it boldly goes but but it it doesn't it it's just the beginning of the it's just the beginning of the journey it doesn't have much to say about what we're going to find when we get there right. if that makes any sense and i think a lot of the great star trek music does but this but but by design this is not meant to do what the first contact theme does this is meant right. to 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 it's an exclamation point it's like you know boldly go exclamation point boom and and we're off to the races and that's all it does and i think it does it very well well what a fitting coda for our music episode uh i wasn't sure if this episode, uh, the, the, the conversation would be as enlightened as on previous holiday specials. But I have to say, you guys delivered. This was a terrific episode and a look at an often neglected part of the Star Trek legacy. And uh, I'm so glad we once delivered, we, know, we delivered another supersized holiday special. And if you want to continue your trekucation about Star Trek music, you want to pick up Jeff Bond's The Music of Star Trek coming in an expanded edition next year. And um, I don't think you can pick up the the Jerry Goldsmith uh, companion. That's sold out on Kickstarter, isn't it, Jeff? Uh, yeah, so far. Uh, okay, but it, the, it, it may be available uh, in another form. Well, that, that would be very true to Star Trek. Yes. It's available in another form. It's transforming. Evolving. It's taking out a new guise, evolving. Exactly. But uh, guys, we're on the downward slide now. Uh, as we, we count down to our 10th, 10, the conclusion of our top 10, top 10, 10 countdowns. I don't look at it as a, I don't look at it as a downward slide. I I look at it as we're just gaining momentum. Gaining momentum. We're, we're, we're trying to achieve breakaway speed so we can go back in time and do it all again. Um, (laughs) but this was, uh, this was an extraordinary conversation. I want to thank special guest Jeff Bond. Uh, for joining us, uh, uh, formerly a film score monthly and now an esteemed uh, expert in the music of Star Trek. Of course, as always, we're thrilled to have Rartmeyer Burnett uh, coming to us from the Burnett work uh, over at his uh, secret observatory. 
Thanks for having me. Again, what, a, what an honor it was to be with you boys and to be with the esteemed Jeff Bond. Well, so much, so much great feedback coming in. And we're anxious to hear, well, I always say that, but I can't really get it out because I don't care. But we're, I guess we're, we're, some of us are anxious <laughs> to hear what you think. So you want to email us at trexpertsplus at gmail.com or engage with us on social, on all your favorite social channels, at Inglorious Trek or Inglorious Trexperts, and uh, share your favorite Star Trek music cues. And of course, if you're wondering, how can I listen to all this wonderful music you owe it to yourself to pick up La La Land's 1701 collection, uh, currently available at the La La Land website, along with many of their other fantastic Star Trek collections, many of which Jeff Bond wrote the liner notes for. So right. you should check that out. Don't say, I can't find it on streaming. What should I do? <laughs> Go to La La Land and buy the freaking CD. Guess what? Physical media. Streaming does not come with Jeff Bond's liner notes. It doesn't come with beautiful packaging. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't reward the people who are spending the money to restore these soundtracks uh, to their uh, uh, original glory and even beyond that. All the movies have been released. So much more we could have talked about. We didn't talk about Insurrection, Nemesis. Uh, we didn't talk about uh, the more recent uh, Star Trek shows, uh, uh, which you know. So, but this was about the top ten. I think it was phenomenal. What a great show. So grateful to you guys for being here. And a very happy holidays to all our listeners as we continue our countdown of top 10 Star Trek lists here on the Inglorious Trexperts holiday special. So on behalf of Jeff Bond, Robert Meyer Burnett, Ashley Edward Miller, Darren Dockerman, a very special thank you to Mark Rivera and Peter Holmstrom. And happy holidays and keep on trekking. Ingloriously, of course, we'll see you next week.